I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Failed Critics Triple Bill. This week we'll be picking our favourite true stories we'd like to be made into films um, and who we'd like to star in and direct them. James, can you just quickly clarify, were we allowed to pick true stories that had already been made into films that we wanted to be done differently? Yes, yeah, that's that's fine. If it's if you, as long, don't just remake a true story and put a different director and cast in place. Tell me what you're going to do differently. But yeah, if there is a film that hasn't done the job properly, then that's fine as well. Excellent. Well, we're going to start with Jerry because he's got to disappear halfway through this recording. So we're going to get his ideas out of his head, then go on to the rest of ours and finish off with what you lot have sent into us because this week we've had quite a good response. Yes. So, Jerry, take it away. Okay, I'll start with my one that is sort of a remake, and then the others are sort of pure new stories, as far as I'm aware. The first one, um, there was a film of this called Beloved Infidel, so extreme film buffs will, will know what I'm talking about already. I never heard of it until I researched this. Scott <laughs> um, Gregory Peckin and Deborah Kerr. Um, that is a biographical film about F. Scott Fitzgerald, who is one of my favourite writers. Um, he had a very sort of tumultuous life, particularly his relationship with his wife, uh, Zelda. And really, I think it's, it's so interesting. I, I, that film apparently didn't explore too much about it. Um, I think it would make a really interesting story. Now, you want sort of actors... Anybody who's seen Midnight in Paris knows that Tom Hiddleston was excellent playing F. Scott Fitzgerald. So, um, we'll have him back, thanks. Cheers! Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's easy. <laughs> I'm um, joking, that, that's, that's good casting, I like it. To play Zelda, I think Zelda is kind of like, um, if you're not familiar with his actual life story, she was kind of a bit like Daisy in The Great Gatsby, she's a bit of a floaty mental character, and she actually ended up dying in, in an insane asylum and stuff after he died. I mean, it's a crazy story. I don't really want to give too much of it away, because if it ever gets made, you'll be fucking riveted. Um, but you would need someone a bit sort of airy and, and floaty like that. I'm not entirely sure who I would have for Zelda Fitzgerald, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I know definitely for a director, I would have someone like Sam Mendes, because I think when you're telling a story that's, sort of two lovers who are they kind of they love each other and they hate each other and they're destroying each other but they can't tear themselves away from each other if anybody's seen Revolutionary Road which by the way is one of the most brutal films you'll ever see in a completely non-violent way it's just horrible 
Um, it's a complete dissection of, of that relationship. It's just horrible. Um, I think he would do a really great job. I mean, you need someone to do a kind of realistic. And I know you've got like Carrie Mulligan in the new Great Gatsby film. She might be all right at it, but he wouldn't want fucking Baz Luhrmann anywhere near this film. <laughs> Just like <laughs> absolute hatred for the, the trailer so far for that film. Um, basically, what I would like to do is really tell the story of those two meeting, make it kind of like a love story, but it, it's a real bit of twisted love story. They, they, you know, they met, they fell out, they were both fucking alcoholics. Um, they, they sort of hated each other a bit, absolutely loved each other and couldn't draw themselves away. Um, she was kind of a golden girl of youth society um, and he was trying to support them through his writing while he was doing his day job and things. And she, she, they were engaged and then she fucked him off because she said he was never going to make a success of it and he wasn't going to be able to support her. Um, and then he got successful, so she took it back. Um, and then all the way through the jazz age, all that kind of glamour and glitz and everything, they, you know, they were famous, famously friends with Hemingway and all that kind of cast that were in... Uh, Midnight in Paris, and sort of Hemingway hated Zelda basically, so you would want Hemingway in there as well as that, that extra dynamic. Hemingway thought she was insane uh, and said that she was bad front for him and made him drink so that he didn't write and things like that. Um, and it's a great, it's a real passionate story. The, she basically went mental. She developed schizophrenia and stuff, and, and he basically spent most of the 30s um, kind of writing a lot of short stories and, and, and then novels. He wrote Tender as the Night during this period. Um, and he kind of wrote it so that he could pay for a, for medical bills for a psychiatric treatment. So he, he, that's the kind of, the kind of thing. And, and if anybody's read Tender as the Night, it's, it's kind of autobiographical. Um, it tells the story of, you know, someone marrying someone who, who turns out to be, uh, is, you know, it's a psychiatrist who marries one of his patients. And it's all about struggles with mental illness in a marriage and things. It would be a fantastic story. Um, I'd just love to see it, but I, again, I'm, I really like him as an author, and I like his books. And you know, it's, it'd have everything. It'd have love. It'd have hate. Uh, it'd have mental illness, alcoholism, uh, glitzy parties with all this crazy horribleness underneath. Um, you know, Fitzgerald dying of TB and all sorts of stuff. I think that's. I think that was what eventually killed him. Um, well, he had a heart attack, but he'd had TB and it weakened him. And then, you know, she ended up dying in a, in a fire in a mental asylum. That's how she died. So it's a very sad story, but I, I would love to see it made. Wow, yeah. I want to see it made now. I, all I know really about that story is what I've seen in Midnight in Paris. So you've really expanded on that. And no, I'm, I'm all over I've, I've green-lighted it. It's going ahead. <laughs> Excellent. What's, what's up next then, Jerry? It's a good start. Right, my next one, uh, we'll go for a more British one. I'm going for a real multinational selection of places here. Well, going for a British one, one that I won't have to tell as much of a story with, I hope, to our listeners, uh, apart from the numerous, well, well, miscellaneous Australians and Americans who listen to us, apparently. Hello. Um, the story of Dr. David Kelly, which actually someone on the forum suggested. They uh, did, yeah. And I was like, be quiet, be quiet, don't talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> basically you know uh, Dr. David Kelly was a scientist he was an expert on uh, biological weapons worked for the MOD at uh, the Ministry of Defence for the non-Brits um, and he was a weapons inspector in Iraq and things and he, he, he had a, a conversation with a journalist um, about the British government's alleged 
um, sort of conspiracy about uh, weapons of mass destruction and Iraq. Let's let's keep it at that. And he was um, called up before a parliamentary select committee and was questioned really harshly and aggressively. And then he was found dead two days later. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories and things that, you know, the official verbs that he committed suicide. And then there was all sorts of things, um, whether he was pushed. And there was a real, you know, there was a full inquiry. So the Hutton inquiry was set up to it. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of things about whether the, the media reports about it and everything were, were sort of distressing him and, and the pressure on him sort of drew, drew him to suicide. So I think you could make, I mean, I don't know much about the guy before the whole, controversy came about but I think even just that short period of time I mean it, it's not a very long period of time at all um, it was it was kind of all took place in July had this, this off the record discussion with a journalist and then I think he was he was dead uh, by the 17th or 18th 17th um, so you know you could just do that very short period you could make it very sort of dynamic bit of a political thriller obviously as regular listeners will know there's only one director I want for this political th- thriller. It's Thomas Alfredson, who directed Tinker Tinker Soldiers. And again, David Kelly, bit of a, oh, I think he's about 59 at the time. Um, Gary, Gary Oldman's pretty good at playing old guys. We'll get, we'll get him back. There's a very recurring theme, although I would like to see some sort of, um, you know, established British actors. There's a lot of established British actors around that age who could play it just need to grow a beard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you would, you know, you need someone like that, like, like Alfredson and, and, and those kind of scriptwriters as well, who would, um, be able to craft the sort of complexities and the political, uh, maneuvering and make a real film out of it. I think, um, it, it has the potential for that, definitely. I mean, it's a story I think most of us are familiar with and you know, we followed it all the time. So it'd be nice if they could get some kind of inside, insights onto that as well, because sees about it um, and you know whether he had heart disease and, and the, the drug he was on for his heart disease and things whether he that he wouldn't have actually killed himself he was a normal person and things like that um, it's still ongoing so I think that's probably going to cause it this you know sort of ongoing there's, there's not really been any answers about it so I think that will probably hinder it being made in all actuality but yeah I think I think it's one of those stories that I like political intrigue thrillers and conspiracy things and it wouldn't have time travel to fuck with your head Steve so you'd be fine <laughs> there we go right my third one we have done I've done America done Britain um, now I'm going to go a bit more out there and I'm going to say guy you've probably never heard of now which is Alexander Karelin anybody heard of him I know his name but I don't know why I think I might have mentioned it last last week. I think I might have just said, oh, I'm having him before anybody does it. Okay. Alexander Karelin. The guy's whole life is like some kind of Greek myth, right? He was born, he was a 15-pound baby, right? Anybody who's familiar with childbirth and things, that is an enormous baby. Um, he was born to a five-foot-six mother in Siberia. So already you know he's a badass, right? Um and he basically spent his childhood, like, fucking around in the wilds of Siberia, you know, hunting sable and things like that. They generally been uh, going around on skis in horrendous weather conditions. Um, he took up uh, wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, you know, the proper stuff, the, the things actually real, sort of big oiled up, steroid-ridden men throwing each other around and, and jumping. Um, he basically, 
his, he was incredible at, at wrestling, but he, he took up the sport as a teenager and broke his leg really badly when he was about 15. And I mean, like, he practically exploded his, his femur. He, he, he smashed his leg to pieces. And his mother, being, you know, like all mothers, she was like, no, no, you can't do wrestling anymore. I don't want you doing that. You don't want her. And his response was to say, I'm not uh, giving in to the sport that took my leg. Right? <laughs> Just, and he, he, you know, he rehabbed his injury by going around on skis and hunting sable, as I say. Um, and he, in international competition from 1987 to the year 2000, he was undefeated in international competition for, for 13 years. And for six years of that, he didn't give up a single point, which if you know anything about Greg Owen, pretty amazing um, he retired in 2000 after the gold medal match at the Sydney Olympics because he, he had one of the biggest upsets in history against some fat American bloke um, who he'd previously beaten and stuff it was it was crazy um, he was known as the experiment right because he was you know he was this crazy big Russian guy um, and everyone assumed that he was, you know, one of these Soviet athletes and, and people said he must, he must have been created by the Soviets in some kind of genetic experiment to create a super or a super athlete. And um, he was six foot three. He weighed 130 kilos, which is 286 pounds. So he was one big man. Um, and he was in the heaviest weight class. So all these guys were massive, you know, 300 pound guys. Uh, and he was ripped to shreds. Uh, if you Google image this guy, he's, he, you know, he's a, he's a monster. And he was famous for his Corellin lift, right? Which um, he used to basically pick people, when people were on the floor, he used to just pick them up and like, basically like a suplex in wrestling, but he was doing it for real on three. <laughs> Fighting very hard not to do this. And he was just so hard that he, he just lifted them up and threw these 300 pound men around and slammed people around. There's, there's great YouTube videos of just destroying people. <laughs> uh, and basically, these guys who, you know, world-class wrestlers in world championships and things in the Olympics would decide that rather than get their ass kicked by Corellin, the easiest thing was to lay down on their bellies so that you couldn't get them on their back and, and win. So um, he developed this move, which was basically to pick them up and throw them around to get around people. <laughs> the guy was, he was amazing. I mean, people in light, I'm assured that people in light but the, the strength that you need to lift heavyweight 300-pound men around is just it's incredible. Um, in addition to his physical attributes, he also holds a PhD and has a law degree. Um, he used to fly around in a private helicopter with two masseuses in it, so, you know, to give him massages when he won. <laughs> and even better, he used to go, well, you know, he'd compete, win gold medals, world championships, uh, Olympics and all this, and then he would just... Um, go home and watch the opera and, and read books and, and, and things like that and go to the ballet. He's probably the only man in the world who can go to the opera and the ballet and not one person would ever dream of calling him gay. Um, he's now he retired after that famous loss, um, even though he was so dominant and he began a political career and he's now a member of Vladimir Putin's party. He's the representative of his region in, in Siberia. Um, and he's now a politician. He's, he's he's quite an ugly bloke, as you would imagine. Somebody spent this entire life. I, I bet Putin could take him in a fight, though. Uh, he's probably mad at that party. You, you, you could probably take Putin, actually. Putin, <laughs> he like you know probably wrestles bears in his spare time. But Karelin probably just like you know the bears won't fight Karelin because he's that hard. <laughs> so should we expect to see him in Expendables Three? We'll be in part of Molly's new crew. Not any sense yet, but he would probably. Just- and do it himself because he's just hard. 
he was he was known as the experiment right and he's really known for this quote he's really famous um people say you know they said why do you think everyone calls it experiment and he says oh it's just because everyone does understand because i train every single day of my life as they have never trained a day in theirs um he used to routinely bench press 400 pounds every single day of his life in his training center i mean he was just a machine but if, if you ever read stuff about this guy he's he's just incredible um onto the film it's a bit more story to explain with that one. You need a big bloke. Um, I thought about Tom Hardy because he's, you know, he's been doing big bulky roles recently, but he's far too good looking to play Corelli. Um, Corelli is one ugly man. Um, basically, just get any wrestler, some some big massive guy. You know, I thought could Ron Perlman do it? I don't. He, he's ugly enough. <laughs> be producing that though. <laughs> Not. Kurt Angle was was actually reasonably decent in Warrior playing um, Karelin. Like yeah. the other badass thing about Karelin, uh, anybody played Street Fighter? Yeah, yeah. Character of Zangief is based on Alexander Karelin. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so basically, I get any rest. I thought Kurt Angle was pretty decent. You know, um, speaking of Warrior, Gavin O'Connor, who directed Warrior, would probably be able to do a decent job of this guy's life. But actually, I think the best one would be someone like um, John McTiernan, you know, a guy who did Predator, mm-hmm. Arts, uh, Hunt for Red October, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He would have to resolve his legal problems first because he's recently been sentenced to jail for, years for some kind of weird investigation thing during the filming of Rollerball. Imagine, go, imagine making that film and then going to prison over something to do with Rollerball. Oh, dear, yeah. But yeah, I think you need a good action director in there. You're going to tell the story of this guy's life. But also, you know, he had a wife and kids and he would just go home on the weekend and just watch the opera and ballet and read and do his PhD. And he was just... Legend. So yeah, that's my three. I think his, his life would... It's like a myth. His whole life is like some kind of Greek myth. He's like a modern-day Hercules. Although, a big respect to his mother, who's five or six, and managed to give birth to that monster. <laughs> <laughs> thinking about but yeah this guy's awesome if you ever just stick him in google have a look at some of the youtube videos or have a look at the, the images of him he was a terrifying guy and then just read the, there's a website called badass of the week who've done an excellent piece on him um he's he's just incredible i'll try and put a link to some youtube videos on the blo- on this blog because i think people need to see this man if you like pain in the dark night rises right you, you're gonna you're gonna love this guy because i think <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, um, I guess you're leaving us now, Jerry. Yes, I am. Off my jet set lifestyle. Yeah, have a lovely time. We'll see you for have fun. We'll see you for Total Recall. Yeah, I will. I will be back for the next week. My jet set lifestyle is not that. All <laughs> jet sets, indeed. I'm only going. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to move on to my choices because. I can't wait to tell the story of this brilliant person. Oh, before I go, I would just like to endorse wholeheartedly Steve's Steve's choice here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start off at the end of this guy's story. Well, not quite the end, but near the end. Um, is this how the film would go as well? Or yes. You're going to start at, yeah, I like it. Yeah, this is, the way I do the film, I'll do that first before I go on to this guy's story. Um, the way I do the film was, you know, in a way of if something like Forrest Gump, where he's sort of telling his life story to to people, 
Um, yeah. And, but basically, it'd start off like this. Basically, this guy, his name was Jack Churchill, or to give him his full name, John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming uh, Churchill, nicknamed Jack, or Mad Jack. Uh, you know, once in a while you hear, you know how Brits get their reputation as being eccentric? <laughs> this 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 guy is exactly why. This is this is why people think of Brits as being eccentric. I'll start the story. Basically, um, I'm not sure if he's retired um, or sort of when he's one of his last few jobs after leaving the military. But he would. This is how it says on Wikipedia. He would startle train conductors and passengers by throwing his Atachi case out of the window each day on the ride home. He later explained that he was just tossing it into his back garden so he didn't have to carry it home from the station. <laughs> this this is where I'm starting. So I'd start with yeah. I'd start with him doing this for like a week on a train and some 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 guy or some child is like just what the hell is he doing and goes and asks him and then he starts recounting his life story to him. Um but yeah. But it's just, but he's just so brilliant. Um, it, yeah, he was in, he, he was, he's even had roles in films, but he, he's made a success or, you know, you know, big part of his life was in the Second World War. Um, he, he was the only person in World War Two to have killed an enemy with a longbow. <laughs> He would often, he would actually go into every battle or every, you know, engagement or whatever during the war, armed with his longbow and arrows round his neck, his bagpipes under his arm, and a Scottish broadsword. I don't know if he had a gun. There's no, there's no reference to him using a gun, ever. In, in anything I've read about him, there's nothing about a gun. It's all broadswords, longbows, and bagpipes in World War Two. He's actually quoted as saying, any officer who goes into action without his sword is improperly armed. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's times where, um, let me just find it. He was, he's sort of, you know, just such a success in war. He got the military cross, distinguished service honour. Um, but there's times where, you know, a mortar shell had killed or wounded everyone in his, in his troop of commandos other than him. And as the Germans advanced, he was playing Will You Know Come Back Again on his bagpipes. <laughs> as Germans were advancing at him, and he didn't die. Wow. He, he escaped as a prisoner of war. He's just... He joined the commandos because he didn't know what it was, but it sounded dangerous. <laughs> And it, it just his story only gets better. He wanted to transfer to um, the Pacific Theatre in, in World War Two, and he ended up getting to Burma, but the, the nuclear bombs were uh, dropped on Japan. He he was quoted as saying, "If it wasn't for those damn Yanks, we could have kept the war going another ten years." <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> then he was uh, he appeared as an apart uh, as an archer in. Uh, the 1946 film Ivanhoe. <laughs> he saved 700 Jewish doctor students and patients um, from uh, attack by Arabs in 1948. Um, and he moved to Australia and become a prominent surfer. 
Wow. What a career. He's moved, he moved back to England um, and become the first man to ride the River Seven's five-foot tidal bore, which apparently is a big deal in surfing, my, re- my research tells me. Uh, and he designed his own surfboard. He he needs a TV series, not just a film. <laughs> he just <laughs> he's got a profile to rival Kim Jong Il, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> this stuff is unbelievable. Yeah, he was he was um he was flown to, he was captured by the Germans when he was pay, playing his bagpipes. He was knocked unconscious <laughs> by a grenade. Um, <laughs> just knocked unconscious as well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, esca- escape it. escape from the prisoner of war camp. Managed to walk to the Baltic coast where they were arrested again. And then managed to escape once more. <laughs> Just typical, you know, like I said earlier, when, when like, Americans or whoever describe Brits as eccentric, it's because of people like him. Yeah. Uh, he died aged 89 in 1996. Oh, but I'm trying wow. to, I'm trying to think who I'd have playing the older version of him, sort of, you know, intro- doing the Forrest Gump bit, telling his life story. It's got to be someone British. I'm thinking just someone like Jim Broadbent. Yeah. But mm. for the main actual part of him as a young man throughout his life, I'm thinking of someone eccentric, somebody who's, you know, a bit mad, um, yeah. but can do, that can do a bit of seriousness as well. I'm thinking, give him a film role, the current Doctor Who, Matt Smith. Oh, all left field, but yeah. I like it. I, I certainly <laughs> think he can, field, but yeah. he can certainly do eccentric. He's got, he's got crazy, yeah. yeah. He can do crazy, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it would probably be David Tennant, I would have thought, would be better. He's already Scottish for a start. <laughs> um, True. Yeah, um, I'm not as up on directors as the rest of you, so I'm going to challenge you lot with picking a director for my films. Um, do, do you know what? Could could I just? There's one way you could go here, and I nearly had him directing one of mine until I decided to make it a bit more serious. But could, is there an argument for Tarantino here? There could well be. He does like to do. Mm, an, he does like to do another crazy bastard. You because know, because this man sounds like a comic book. This this uh, man this know, this violence. This man things. could have been part of the Inglorious Bastards. That's what I'm mm. thinking. I, I think. It's almost like Quentin Tarantino's version of what every soldier was like in World <laughs> War Two, kind of thing. And that's, that's where I'm coming from there. Although if you wanted to treat it a bit more seriously, um, um, oh, I don't know. Spielberg does quite um, big war films, doesn't he? I mean, he did uh, yeah. War Wars and David Private Ryan and stuff, so I suppose yes. he would be a fairly safe choice. But, um, I suppose it depends on how you wanted to go with it, but yeah. But but listeners, there's no plans to make a film about this guy at the moment, so please read what? up read up about him. Stick but Jack I'm stick Jack Churchill into Google because he is an absolute hero of life size proportions. Excellent choice, Steve. Any yeah. anyone who throws his case off a train into his garden because he can't. He bothered to carry it over from the station. It's just... That's a lovely little touch. I like how you've opened the film with that as well. It's a lovely little I think touch. it's best to open it with that rather than end it with that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my second biopic, they're all biopics or biopics. Oh, whichever, no which, whichever way we're going with that, <laughs> is, given that we all met on a football forum, I think we need to pick a footballer. 
I think it needs to be one of the most, I don't know, is it, you know, one of the most colourful, entertaining and best footballers that the planet's ever seen. And it was a toss-up for my list between... It was my, my list. It was a toss-up between George Best and Diego Maradona. I've gone for Diego Maradona. Yes, yes, there needs to be a Maradona film. The man is an absolute lunatic. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd start it, I wouldn't start it from childhood. I'd start it from probably him making his debut for Boca Juniors. Then you can transfer, you know, when he moves to Barcelona for £5 million. You can go for all the World Cups, the hand of God. You know, the move to Napoli where he pretty much single-handedly wins in the league. There's all the links with the Mafia as well while he's living in Napoli. And then you can go into his descent into drug abuse that sort of... Well, it doesn't peak at USA 94 where he was banned, but, you know, because he did sort of go a bit mad on it then and balloon yeah, to, to disproportionate yeah, sizes. But, you know, and then you could... You know, you could go on to his... And then you could sort of end it there, or you could carry on to his management of the Argentina side at the at the World Cup uh, in 2010. But you know, big so- Maradona. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, redemption. I think having him become the manager of Argentina would be a great way to do yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, for such a world class talent with such a brilliantly interesting history and personality and everything that's gone on off the pitch as well, I think it needs to be made in, you know, it needs to be made into a Hollywood film. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no, 100%. Who are you having playing Maradona then? Well, this is a challenge. I was I was looking for somebody, I thought I wanted to go a bit authentic and go with somebody a bit Spanishy, mm. if that makes sense. And the only yeah. person I really knew other than Antonio Bandera, so I wasn't going for him. <laughs> Was tragically miscast. Was he clinched? He's clinched this role after appearing as Cristiano Ronaldo in a Nike advert. No, I've not seen it. Uh, From the World Cup in 2010, Gael Garcia Bernal. Oh, is he the guy who did um, uh, the Motorcycle Diaries? Um, appeared as Shane Carr in Motorcycle Diaries. Yes. Yeah, I was going to suggest him. Good work. Yes, yes, we're on the same page here. I thought I'd get somebody, you know, who actually speaks a language and could probably, you know, look a bit more the part than like a typical Hollywood yeah. person. You could have cast Benicio del Toro <laughs> 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 and just like hobbitized him so that he looked short. <laughs> but yeah, I've you know, they've got to make a film with Diego Maradona just because. You know, it's between him and George Best of a world-class player who's off the pitch, got a brilliant sort of character and story. Because there's people like Pele, who is world-class, but off the mm. pitch, other than slagging off Maradona every chance he gets and yeah. advertising Viagra, he doesn't. He's not really that interesting. He's not an interesting person, no. You're you exactly know. right. But you know, Maradona's had Maradona was well in with the mafia when he played for Napoli. Yeah. And was Maradona's got the more extreme highs and lows yeah. compared to George Best. George yeah. Best was, you know, he he did very well for a home nations player, yeah, uh, but never appeared at a world, never won a World Cup basically single handedly, yeah. But also never had, you know, and you know the whole Napoli thing. The fact that Maradona won titles for Napoli, 
is ridiculous. Napoli should never have been near the Scudetto. No. Um, but that's amazing highs. But then, yeah, you've got the mafia, the drugs, um, the big fat Maradona. <laughs> He's loaded. Who's hanging out with Castro? Pardon? Who's hanging out with Castro? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, he's fu- he is the most interesting footballer and that has lived. So who who would you guys have directing my Maradona masterpiece? He'd probably be up for doing I, it himself. Yeah, quite quite possibly. Do you know, I I'm thinking Steven Soderbergh. I want it quite. I want this really <laughs> realistic. That would be a very uh, <laughs> yeah realistic <laughs> low drama yeah. piece. I think it needs to yeah. be something a little more, a bit more crazy. Someone who's can really ram this kind of insanity of Maradona's life, but I have no idea who that could be. And I mean, you don't, I suppose you don't really have to sort of refilm the on-pitch moments. You could just take it from footage. Yeah. You mm, could just show yeah. the hand of God. You could show that drug-fueled celebration at USA 94 where he's yeah. pretty much ripping the camera out of the cameraman's hands. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. I'm, again, greenlit. I'm all over that. <laughs> if any of our film suggestions start getting made, do we sort of, you know, like out of the uh, blue, do we kind of... Got stamp on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm ready to sue. Don't yeah. you worry. Yeah. With lawyers on, <laughs> on retainer. This is copyright now. We've committed yeah. it to, film, uh, to yeah. audio, yeah. If uh, anyone is thinking of making... the marbles of um, us... Claiming the copyright on other people. <laughs> <laughs> you should make a film of that. If, if, um, if anyone is listening and and someone like Mr. Soderbergh does decide to make a Diego Maradona film, I will not sue if I can have a cameo as Ozzy Ardiles. <laughs> That's so, a fair deal. I, I want to be Claudio Canigia. <laughs> Um, and my final one, I think we might have to wait um, a few years for this one to be made, as a decision on him was only made today. Uh, but oh, oh. Anders Breivik, I just think, you know, it's obviously a tragic and horrible story, and he's not, you know, he's, well, he's not insane, apparently. Um, but I think, you know, as, as a look at one of the most sort of, cynical serial killers has been somebody who sort of shows no remorse for what he's done and is sort of proud if anything of what he's done and committed such awful atrocities a, a film looking into him could be fantastic yeah I, I see what you're saying there Steve yeah I think to be honest you know we've we're, we're comfortable with films about Hitler now so yeah, yeah. at some point Look, yeah, I think I think we'll have to wait a little while for it to be made yeah. um yeah and I, I can't imagine many actors at the moment taking. No, yeah. I think I've, yeah, I think we we'd have a project like that. No, I think we'd have to, you know, like I say, wait wait a while for it. But I think the best way yeah. to do the film would be to look into what the judge's decision on whether he's sane or not, because that seems to have been a massive part of the trial. Whether yeah. he, he's been saying that he's not sane all along, he's, uh, he's saying that he is sane all along. Um, mm. But obviously there's been the court and, you know, debating whether he is sane or whether he's insane or, and I think, you know, to look at it that way, whether somebody like him who's done what he has done is actually sane or not could be the best way to go about it. More a, a, a tribulation yeah. from the judge's point of view, whether to 
before sentencing him for his crimes, deciding his mental state. A question, yeah, you're exactly right. The, the, the sanity and morality, and question, that's a very interesting way to look. Because, you know, just you know, without wanting to get political or, or philosophical or anything, you do think anyone who kills that many people just can't be sane, surely. The, but he, the, but the very fact that they've done it... But throughout um, the whole he thing, he's. Sane, but throughout the whole uh, thing, he's he's pleaded that he is sane. He's you know yeah, he's claimed that he is sane, and he's been he's been so callous and shown no remorse and yeah. a kind of arrogance about it as well. Yeah, he's a he is a fascinating character. Yeah, uh, you can't you can't avoid that. It, it, it would be fascinating to know what is going on inside his mind. But yeah. like yeah, like I watched. I watched a made-up film uh, last week, didn't I? Rampage, uh, about a shooting. And the fact that that didn't even exist, that wasn't based on a real shooting, that was still really disturbing for me to watch. So, yeah, no, I think you're right, Steve. I think at some point a film will be made about it, um, and probably sooner than we think. Mm. Um, I but, think... yeah, no, it will be interesting to see where they go with that. I mean, I think... I'll tell you who would be good for a film like that, actually, is Cronenberg. Uh, I think he could do something, or, or even, um, you know, Soderbergh, who you mentioned earlier, doing something, that idea of having it about the character, but without showing him, you know, show, yeah. people. Yeah, not really, really satisfaction. Yeah, because yeah. that's the other, if he's alive, you potentially glorifying what he's done. Uh, so, yeah, it, almost making a film about it, but without uh, being about what he did, that would be very yeah. interesting. Yeah, that would be Without, you could do it perhaps even without mentioning his name or anything, and it would just be yeah. one of these kind of fascinating um, psychoanalysis kind of films. You know? mm. yeah. I mean, I think it's if really anyone was to play Brevik, I think Tom Hardy has played some nutters before and could probably pull off the role. I wouldn't be too concerned about a Scandinavian accent because, you know, Daniel Craig didn't bother in a girl with a dragon <laughs> tattoo, so why should anyone else try it? But, you know, he's played Bronson. Bane was... a, a Pretty maniacal character as well. It's Bronson as well. He is brilliant. Bronson's a mess of a film. Mm. Um, but he and Bronson in real life is a nasty, nasty character. Mm. And in a way, you, do, you know, it, so he's got inside the mind of one of these people. Bronson's no Brevik, but he is a nasty, nasty piece of work. Mm. Um, I'm not sure who I'd get to play the judge though. So yeah, you need you yeah. need some gravitas there, don't yeah. you? Yeah. John Hurt. I always yeah. like John Hurt. <laughs> uh, should we move on to you then, James? Yes. Okay. So, uh, well, I'm just turning on the interior light of my car now. Uh, for those of you <laughs> joining us late, I'm recording what? my car today. Um, Which kind of car is it? It's a Nissan Micra. I'm an old woman. Nissan uh, Micra. Uh, we've got a Micra as well. No. Yeah. I'll just pop around the city. It's got great mileage. <laughs> Nissan Micra, the official car of the Failed Critic yeah. podcast. Other cars are available. Yes. <laughs> oh, we're turning into some kind of top gear now as well. Excellent. Right. Um, yeah, my three. So the first one I'm going to talk about, um, I can't, there has been a film made about it, but in the 60s, and I believe starring Christopher Lee, uh, but not one since, and I can't believe that. So it's about uh, Grigori Rasputin. Um those of you who don't know about Rasputin or only know him from the Boney M song, uh, he was, of course, Russian <laughs> Francis and Love Machine. Um, you have to sing a bit now. You've you brought up the song. You've got to sing some of it. 
rah, rah, Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. Because I'm in a car and no one else can hear me. No <laughs> um, yeah, but basically, uh, he is perceived as having influenced uh, the latter days of the Russian Emperor Nicholas II, uh, his wife Alexandra, and their son Alexei. Uh, some people call him the Mad Monk, uh, which might be, well be the title of my film. Um, there's not a lot known about his childhood, except the fact that both his siblings do, uh, fell into a pond and he jumped in to save them. They pulled out, um, but they later died of pneumonia. That quite affected him. Um, he got really religious uh, and turned towards the life of a religious mystic and wanderer. He fell in with a cult whose um, services ended in physical exhaustion. There were rumours of religious and sexual ecstasy, so you can see where I'm going with the build-up of his younger character. Ended up wandering as a pilgrim. And then, in the end, the Russian royal family searched him out because their youngest son suffered from haemophilia, which was common amongst all of the um, descendants of Queen Victoria. Uh, and they were descendants of Queen Victoria. Now, he ended up in the court of the, uh, the emperor then and basically just became a massive politician. He was really in charge of Russia. Became too much, and then he got assassinated but i'd build up half the film would be about his life and then the rest of it would be about the night of the assassination which is just it's amazing uh it, it's become legend and for, again for those of you who don't know about what happened that night um some friends uh, and a right-wing politician invited him down to a cellar uh, and their plan was, right, we need to kill him quite quickly and get rid of the body before sunlight. They fed him cakes and red wine laced with cyanide. And apparently there was enough cyanide to kill five men in what he consumed. And he just stood there, did, did nothing to him. Um, so then what, apparently there was a rumour that he had developed an immunity to poison, which is just brilliant. Uh, someone had already tried to kill him previously by stabbing him uh, as well. And he just shrugged that off as well. So... Um, yeah, determined to finish the job. Prince Yusperov, um, he became anxious uh, that he was going to live until morning and they might not be able to get rid of his body. So in the end, uh, they took him out the back and beat the crap out of him um, and just kept smacking him in, uh, out in the freezing cold back coat. And then he opened his eyes. They thought they'd beaten him to death. And then he opened his eyes and he lunged at the guy who'd beaten him to death and attempted to strangle him. And then uh, everyone started shooting at him. And he was hit three times in the back and he fell again. And they still, they then clubbed him into submission again um, and apparently severed his penis. A uh, bit harsh, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And then they wrapped his body in a carpet and threw him into the river. But he broke out of the carpet, uh, but sadly drowned. Uh, and at his post-mortem, they found, that's where they found the poison that had enough cyanide to kill five men. And also... Uh, there was water in his lungs, which means he was alive when he went into that river. Um, it's just an incredible story. Now, I'd, I'd like to see more of that. We've mentioned him already. I want David Cronenberg directing this, and I want to reunite him with Viggo Mortensen uh, as Rasputin. He can grow a good beard. That's definitely a good start, I believe. From the Boney M song, uh, from the video, I'm pretty sure Rasputin had a beard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and also, he just did some brilliant work with uh, Mortensen in A History of Violence, Eastern Promise. He knows how to handle on-screen violence. I think Mortensen will bring a real gravitas to this role. So that's Rasputin, the movie. My, my other idea was to have 
Tarantino directs Rasputin coming back from the dead and hunting down everyone who tried to kill him. Uh, but that's not technically based on a true story, so I'd be breaking my own rules there. I don't want to disappoint you, though, uh, James, because you've got a brilliant idea. Yeah. But wasn't there a film in the 90s about Rasputin with Alan Rickman? I, I, do you know, I searched, I searched for films about Rasputin. I honestly didn't see that one. I saw one in the 60s with, I think, Christopher Lee, or it might have been um, oh, who, uh, Vincent Price. But okay. I don't know the 90s one. But I'm going to look that up now, because if there is a film about Rasputin, I want to see it. Cause he it might have go. just been a TV film, but I'm sure it was yeah. Alan Rickman. Okay, I'll look into that. Thank you. Putting um, that the idea thing's brilliant, though. I love the idea of... Um, I mean, Cronenberg, uh, because he, I mean, I mentioned him earlier, I think he's brilliant at this sort of psychological violence and stuff, and he'd be perfect for what happened to Rasputin in the end. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'd love to see that, yeah. And, and I love Mortensen, I can watch Mortensen in anything. Mm. My, my second film is definitely a strict biopic this time. We've talked about someone who uh, uh, has, is at the top of their game in terms of sport previously. Um, how about someone who's at the top of their game in a number of sports? I'm going to talk about Charles Burgess Fry, otherwise known as C.B. Fry. I'm hoping Steve's going to get some recognition here because not only did he play for Southampton in an FA Cup final, um, but he also held the world record for long jump, which he set while he was a student at Oxford. He played first-class cricket for Sussex and for England. He was also uh, a brilliant golfer. He became a diplomat and was offered the throne of Albania. Was he, uh, was he the guy who could jump backwards standing onto a mantelpiece? That's it. And he could still do that in his 70s, apparently, from a standing <laughs> jump, jump backwards onto a mantelpiece. Uh, he was a sportsman, a politician, an academic, a writer. Um, but yeah, his first love was cricket and he was a brilliant cricketer. But it's a brilliant story, actually, of someone who comes from quite humble beginnings. You think back in, he was born in 1872 and died in 1956. His family had once been wealthy, but by the time he was born, they, they weren't prosperous at all. He had to win a scholarship to Repton School, um, and he was second to last in his form. His scholarship was in jeopardy, but he just worked really hard to gain promotion every time. Um, uh, while he was at Oxford, someone, a uh, journalist, noticed that the great all-rounder, as they called him, was just smoking a pipe while he was on his way to do a long jump. And his thoughts <laughs> on the long jump were, it's the best fun in the world. One spring up and then the air rushes past you in a hurricane and there you are on your feet, safe and sound. That was his technique. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he liked golf, but saw it as glorified croquet. Um, and the, the journalist, his thoughts on Fry were, I could not but envy the young athletes with his offhand ways and transparent happiness. I felt altogether that I should like to be Fry of Wadham myself. Um, yeah, in the sports reference book, Wisdom at the time stated that Fry was a fine boxer, a passable golfer, swimmer, scholar, tennis player, and javelin thrower as well. Um, and I don't know if uh, we've got any cricket fans that listen to this, but his first-class cricket stats at the end of his career, he had a batting average of over 50 and a bowling average of 29.34. Now, he was up there with both of them, basically. Oh, he also played for rugby's Barbarians team at the same time as well. He is an incredible man. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to see this directed by Joe Wright, who I think did a very good job with Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. He can do period pieces very well. Uh, and oh, I've, I've got to get 
I'm having Michael Fassbender as CB Fry. Uh, <laughs> as the, uh, I think he's got the athleticism, he's got the charm, uh, and I think he could do a brilliant job with this. So that, that's my second choice, is the story of CB Fry. And then finally, uh, has anyone ever heard of Jasper Menkeling? Mas- sorry, Maskeling. Can't say I have. No. He was a British stage magician in the 1930s and 40s. And this is another brilliant eccentric in the Second World War. So this could be part... We could start a studio here, Steve, to make films about these guys. Um, He was from a family of stage magicians. Uh, He could trace his ancestry to a royal astronomer. Um, But he's most remembered for his works for British military intelligence during the Second World War. He joined the Royal Engineers uh, when war broke out. And he started off uh, just entertaining the troops as a magician. And he said, no, no, I I can do more. I can really help the war effort. So they said, I'll prove it to us then. So he made a warship disappear in the Thames, kind of like David Copperfield would have done in the early 40s. Now, fair enough, you'll do for us, son. Um, (laughs) He got to handpick his own uh, artist, magicians and carpenters and criminals and they were in a group called the A-Force, a.k.a. the Magic Gang. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Um, but they built loads of illusions uh, across the theatre of war. Uh, they Probably their biggest one is they concealed Alexandria, uh, the Egyptian city. They con- the, the port, really important, they concealed it from German bombers. And to do that, he built a mock-up city with the nightlights of Alexandria in a bay three miles away and then hid Alexandria overnight. That is incredible. Um, To mask the Suez Canal, one of the most important pieces of uh, uh, transportation in in the war, um, couldn't build a fake canal. Uh, The whole area was landlocked around there. So he just built the biggest disco ball in the world, basically which dazzled and blinded pilots for nine miles around. Um, the man is awesome. He also uh, made Rommel, uh, they disguised, they, at one point they were going to attack from the south, he was helping Montgomery, uh, but they wanted the Germans to think they were going to attack from the north. So he disguised 2,000 tanks of trucks and then came up with 1,000 fake tanks at the top to, uh, and... Rommel completely fell for it, and that really helped uh, Montgomery win one of the great battles there. The weird thing is, though, there's so little in terms of official sources that corroborates anything that he's done, and most of it comes from his own memoirs. And so there is this real element of, actually, did any of this happen? Which is why I'm going to have it directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, uh, what I would, apparently, he then got bored of the army. Um, the Magic Gang disbanded after the battle. Winston Churchill did praise his efforts, although he didn't get like the awards that he wanted. So he published a book about his exploits, and then he later moved to Kenya and founded a, uh, a driving school in Kenya, uh, which is quite interesting, I thought. Um, so we're going to start in Kenya in the early 1970s, just before he dies. Uh, and as it's a Christopher Nolan film, old Jasper is going to be played by Michael Caine, obviously. Um, as it's a Christopher Nolan film, there's going to be an American journalist played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt who stumbles across this angry, drunken man in later, year, later years who hasn't got the, the recognition that he wants and starts telling this story and weaving this story. Maybe 
you know, kind of trying to prove he still has the, the illusion skills to the man in present day. And it's going to be then told in flashback. And I think, oh, you know, as it is a Christopher Nolan film, I'm going to have Killian Murphy playing young masculine um, and just telling the story of how he turned uh, the tide. Also, I don't know if you've heard of someone called Agent Zigzag, but he was the most successful, and this is officially recorded, he was the most successful double agent we had during Second World War. And apparently Masculine worked with him a lot and provided a lot of false information for him as well. So if what he says is true, he helped turn the tide of the Second World War, but all we've got is his word for it. Oh. <laughs> Seems like it's He's a very interesting man. Yes, uh, but yeah, he produced a book which I'm I'm waiting. I've, I've managed to track down on eBay and I'm waiting for it now because maybe I could write this. But uh, his book is called Magic Top Secret, which might which also might be the name of the film. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably the name of um, Paul Daniel's autobiography. <laughs> well, um, on to Owen then. Okay, so. Um... My first choice is probably slightly predictable for those people that actually know me quite well. Uh, has anyone seen the film Last Days by Gus Van Sant? No. No, I haven't. It's kind of an arty-farty story um, or film, which is essentially the story of Kurt Cobain's Last Days, although it's not specifically about Cobain. It's about an imaginary rock star called Blake. But... You know, it's quite obviously actually about Kurt Cobain. They've just changed the name and some, some of the details. So my plan is, why not do it properly? I did have an initial idea of doing a film instead of this one about Harry Houdini. And then I looked up on Wikipedia and I thought, shit, there's a film that was released in like 2007 starring Guy Peters, which is exactly the story that I had written down. So that kind of scuppered my ideas for that. Oh, <laughs> so, oh right, yeah. Yeah, completely passed me by. I didn't even know it existed. But it's almost uncannily exactly what I had planned. So I'll have to try and watch that thing. But anyway, <laughs> this is, um, instead, it's about Kurt Cobain. I think it could, you could do something, instead of like Gus Van Sant's film, which I think it takes place over, the, you know, five days or something, which is essentially Blake, this rock star who's in a house full of drug addicts and he's just walking around in like basically a slippers and dressing gown and as I say, it's very arty-farty, and that's not the film that I want this to be. I wanted it to be something something that focuses more on on Kurt Cobain's day. I know it's very difficult because, you know, there's not a lot documented about him during this period, during his sort of final days. Mm. Um, but you could do the start of the film beginning with, uh, with Nirvana's 1995 tour. You know, maybe kind of montage through some of it. Um, yeah, can, can you tell I've been watching a lot of Rocky films lately, you know, I'm considering that as a legitimate <laughs> method of filmmaking. But you could, you know, have a few of these sort of jams and mix them together and get through, you know, this tour up to the point um, where Kurt actually gets out of hospital after overdosing and goes back to Seattle. You know, you don't have to make it pander into an audience with no, you know, mushy indie-style romance crap, you know. I wouldn't have... Andrew Garfield and Kerry Mulligan, for example, playing Kurt and Courtney, put it that way. Um, but you could still have something with the, the drama, trying to track him down with Kurt, you know, Courtney really unsure where he is and, you know, people looking for him. You can have him in and out of the recovery centre, dealing with his kind of, you know, his demons and so on. And, um, you know, the best thing about Last Days was Michael Pitt playing Blake, who's in, um, 
Boardwalk Empire, Michael Pitt. Mm. He was the best thing about it. He, he really looked and was believable as Kirk, even though he wasn't playing Kirk. I mean. um, and he, yeah, he was just absolutely brilliant. So, sort of like Jerry's idea earlier, I would bring him back to this film uh, and have Michael Pitt playing Kirk Cobain. Uh, and I'd actually probably, apart from this initial montage idea of mine, I would use the same track as songs that were stuff that inspired Nirvana and Kirk Main instead of using Nirvana songs. I think that would just be a little bit too cliche. So maybe something like, you know, Pixies, John Lennon, Velvet Underground, early REM stuff. I think it would be an absolutely fantastic same track, if nothing else. <laughs> um, but you could get someone like Anton... Um, Corbyn, who's directed quite a lot of music videos, including he did Heart Shaped Box for Nirvana, so he would have some kind of grasp on the character. But he also did, did the um, film Control that Joy Division and uh, right, yeah. So you know, I think it would, he, he would be quite suited to this kind of film. I think he could give it quite an insightful perspective as well uh, if he was the director. Um, but yeah, I mean, it might be a bit obvious choice, but I couldn't really think of anyone who could who could do the same thing, but as well. So. That's my, my first film. I think there hasn't really oh. been a properly good film about Kirk Payne. So, you know, there's quite a trend for music biopics at the moment as well. So maybe someone could do, do one of those. Um, <laughs> the second film um, that I've decided to do would be focusing on a guy called Patrick Cootie, who was um, in the Incan tribes around sort of time that, well, when Pachacuti came to power, it was sort of the mid-15th century. The only reason I know about him, by the way, is because of um, the BBC kids sketch show, Horrible Histories. <laughs> Amazing. Brilliant yeah. show. <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would probably make this into more of um, uh, an epic kind of war film, basically, because he's, if you don't know who he is, he's, he basically had math Machu Picchu built for him, you know, this, this big Incan yeah. uh, uh, site, which is, it was just an estate that he had built for himself, apparently. But I would be more interested in, uh, more interested in this initial war that he fought, where apparently the legend about him uh, was started, uh, where it's said that actually even the stones rose up out of the ground to fight for him. And so his name, Pachacuti, literally translates as uh, he who shook the earth. I thought that's quite interesting. That's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's um, basically what happened with him. His father was um, Sapa Inca, a guy who, which basically means the king of their, their sort of tribe and stuff. Um, and Pachacuti wasn't even the first in line for the throne when his dad died. It, it was his older brother. But they actually fled when they were attacked. Pachacuti stayed to fight their enemies. Um, so this, you could have a film building up to this massive battle, which is where he won all this uh, admiration from his people and became their, their new king. Um, you know, the fallout of that as well, which would make a great film, though, him actually rising to power and taking over this, this kingdom. Uh, and you just think about the amazing locations you'd have to shoot on as well. Some of the scenery you could use in the mountain ranges in Peru and all the Incan sites and stuff. I think it would, if nothing else, like my first film with about Cobain would stay in great. I think this would absolutely look fantastic. And uh, you could make it into a great drama as well. But the only problem is I'm struggling to think who could play the characters and who could direct it. So I want to keep it with that sort of you know, Latin American or Southern American style. So maybe someone like Del Toro, but he's more into sort of kind of fantasy, so he perhaps he could mm. produce it maybe. 
you know, um, Jorge Mikel Grau, who's the guy who did uh, a Mexican film called We Are What We Are. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's a sort of family of cannibals. Mm. But he, he, he's really good at capturing this tension. So, but I haven't seen anything else of his, so I don't know how well he would, he would do it. I suppose you could have someone like Robert Rodriguez, but it's not really his kind of film, thinking about it. <laughs> so I'm stuck for who we could use as a director, and I'm not sure about actors either. I mean, um, I know, for example, uh, that... Uh, Edward James Olmos, who was uh, most mm-hmm. recently, I think, was in um, Dexter. He yes, could, yeah. He could really play the father character quite well, I think. You know, he would, he's got this gravitas to him. And, mm. You know, why not have someone like Javier Bardem in, in it, though, as two, maybe the rival tribe's leader, you know. But, you know, Pachacuti, I, I'm not really sure who you could get to play him. I think he was fairly young during this period. Know, sort of early 20 years old. I know it's difficult for them to find out exactly, but yeah. So you know, I'm struggling to think. Well, who could you get? And um, aside from bringing Matthew Bainton out of the Horrible Histories program, which I don't think is a good idea, um, <laughs> I don't really know who you could get to. The only thing that what I about would... our chap that we cast as Diego earlier, can't remember his name. <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's get him in. I, don't, I can't remember <laughs> him in, but yeah, he'll do. <laughs> um, but you know. What I absolutely wouldn't want the film to end up as is something like Apocalypto, which caused the absolute tits off me. So, something not like that, but a kind of drama based around this big battle. So you can maybe have the battle as the second, third of the film. Yeah. You know. I thought that would be quite an interesting. It's also because I don't know that much about Patrick Kitty, besides what I've, you know, read on Wikipedia and stuff. I think there's a lot of... Um, big details on there that you can find out and build kind of film around, but I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting things that you could add into him about his legends and stuff. So, you know, just the fact that he had uh, that whole place built for him, for example, he must have been some character. Yeah, that, that would be my second choice. Excellent. Um, no, I... My third and final film, trying to lighten the mood a little, I think, after the two serious dramas I've just created. Um, I think it's actually the only comedy film that we've gone for, which is based on a true yeah. story. And I don't think it's going to take much explanation either, but I'd have Christopher Guest do a movie about the 80s alternative comedy movement in Britain. But oh, wow. I think yeah. you, know, you can maybe mix it up a bit with the wider pop culture trends at the time, but um, you know, I think of all the brilliant British comedians you could have cameo in. You know, you could have Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson, Jack D, Eddie Izzard, Harry Enfield, Richard Saunders, Simon Pegg, Steve Coogan. The list is just exhausting. So, are you thinking like a 24-hour party people, but of British comedy rather than the Manchester music scene? Yeah, that kind of thing would be fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, and you could, I would even include a lot of the older, um, older uh, comedians you know, playing some of the old guard, you know. Bernard Manning, Russ Abbott, Mike Regan, Bowen, etc. But doing it in a really over-the-top manner, in a way that Chris yeah. gets a fantastic film character. Um, you know, the whole scene, I just find the whole thing interesting to read about. I was just a little bit too young to be around to, yeah. to read first-hand. But it's one of those things that in, yeah, in time, you know, looking back in hindsight and stuff, I think it's really interesting to read about. Um, and just because it inspired a lot of my favourite comedians too. So it, uh, the problem with the story, I guess, would be how you would focus it. Because if you say you just follow one particular character, you know, if you take, for example, Ben Elton from 1980 mm. to 1990, you kind of miss out on a lot of the other stuff that was happening around that. 
I think Gen yeah. that is best when he's handling lots of different characters. Uh, yeah, loads of different strands and pulling it together. No, that that'd be brilliant. But I think what you could do is squash it into a short period of time with lots of different people. You know, um, the, uh, the the mockumentary you did with the dogs, the dog show. I can't remember what it's called. But oh, the show. show, yeah. So you could maybe perhaps take this as just like a week in the lives of the comedians in the 80s um, and perhaps build it up to something quite climactic, maybe the first episode of Saturday Live or, or something like that. Well, you, could have, you could have it based in the comedy store. Uh, well, it, it, yeah, it could be built around just that one venue, couldn't it? Because they all performed there at one point or another. Yeah, yeah. you know, and then... Yeah. I basically just want to see Christopher Guest direct a comedy about the alternative comedy scene in the eighties. So I'm not really fussed about any other minor details because I would just have complete faith in him to do a good job with it. I think it'd be awesome whatever he did. Um, in fact, you know, it's one of those things that surprises me that hasn't been made already. I think mm. perhaps it's just because it's still fairly um, in people's. You know, people remember it quite well already and. These comedians are still about performing comedy, but yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure if I pitched it to Channel Four, they'd snap it up in a, oh, a Yeah, <laughs> it's money in the bank, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely love to see this film. I think it's my of my three choices. This is the one that I would put all my money into watching and making that. Uh, I know, it's, and it's it's actually really unlike anything I've heard. But but at the same time, you're thinking, well, why hasn't anyone made a film about that? Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah, I know that, that um, Channel 4 did a few of these little TV shows recently around the, the sort of comedy scene. I mean, or was it BBC who did it? But, you know, as an actual film, I think it would be brilliant. I think American audiences perhaps might not get it, but it would be one of these fantastic British films that I would yeah. just absolutely... It wouldn't be expensive, it's fine. Huh? Um, get it lottery funded. <laughs> exactly, I'll take it to Film 4, I'm sure I can get yeah. something from It's fine. Yeah. So that was my final choice. I'm glad that one went in good well, so I was quite proud of that one. Well, I think we've had some very different and excellent choices. But, James, what have the listeners come up with? Um, yeah, uh, we've had some great ones on Twitter. At Nathan Human uh, said, John Darwin, the guy who faked his canoe death, which I think would be a great story. Yeah. He suggests Tom Wilkinson with Penelope Wilton as his wife. I think that'd be a great story. I'd love to. I'd love to properly get under the skin of that story because that's fascinating. Um, at Styles underscore J says uh, the story of Walter Tull, the second black footballer to play in the football league, who went on to become the first black officer in the British Army during World War One. He was killed in action. Uh, so yeah, brilliant, brilliant story there. My, bloody hell, my wife's joined in. Uh, at Kate Dive <laughs> says. Is there a film of the life of Isambard Kingdom Brunel? She's saying that because I always bang on about Brunel. And she can only uh, find an animated short. Step up, Branner, she says, especially after seeing him at the Olympia. Yeah, I'd love to see a film of Brunel. Amazing. Uh, at Satisfied Fool says, um, Sir Ranulph Fine's life story. Brilliant. He also then said, you can pick the star and director. How about having Ray Fines play his dad? How's <laughs> that? And uh, Richard Attenborough to direct. There we go. That's job done there. Does he still direct at the moment? Probably not. One of my favourite bad taste ones uh, on the forum, Love Child of Metzelder, says he'd like the Chris Benoit movie directed by Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> which would be wow. 
actually pretty disgraceful. But um, it did make me laugh a bit for my sins. Uh, so, yeah, that thank you to everyone who, who sent in some ideas there. I think there's some brilliant I've films. Just, and, yet yeah, we'll get some films out of this. I reckon this is, this is how we go in future. I've, I've just kind of realised we all picked biopics, really, rather than, like... Um, event, yeah, an event, like a, a true story of an actual happening. Mm. I don't know, I know it's quite the 80s comedy movement. The 80s comedy one yeah. was a kind of long-term event, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's because if you're thinking about actors, and th- you're thinking about getting under the skin of someone, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Uh, and maybe that's where it's come from. But no, you're right, Steve. That is quite an interesting observation there. I mean, there's, there's a few sporting stories, I think, that could, you know, make decent films as a, you know, a team, say, Denmark being the wildcard entry in, in Euro 92 yeah. and winning it, or, uh, even Isovic being the, that's another individual, but I mean, being the wildcard yeah. entry at Wimbledon that year and winning I'm it. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment about the Rome 1960 Olympics. Um, which is where everything changed. It was the first televised Olympics, uh, but there was still apartheid and black athletes were being kept separate from white athletes. Uh, it, the two, East Germany and West Germany, uh, continued to compete as one country for that one. There were spies everywhere. That, I, don't, I think Rome 1960 would be a fascinating mm. uh, film. But no, you're right. I think we were drawn to characters, weren't we? Mm. Yeah. Definitely. But when you've got characters like Mad Jack Churchill, okay, <laughs> who is my find? That is my find of this. If, in fact, if the listeners forget everything else, please remember Mad Jack Churchill. Uh, just, that's just an incredible story. If, if you're from, if if you're somebody who makes TV programs or films, please make one about him because he's nuts. <laughs> he's quite frankly. There's, it's amazing. I want to see more. I, I am tempted to just go in now and. Uh, go back into my house, leave my car, uh, and go and start writing the story of Mad Jack Churchill, just in the hope someone, you know, if no one else is going to make it, I'll bloody well make I mean, it. How, 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 many, to. how many people go from from war hero killing people in the Second World War where guns and tanks are common with bow and arrow to uh, surfer? Yeah. There's a, the character in Apocalypse Now was uh, a surfer, wasn't he? Just thinking, yeah. actually, it just reminded me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed this episode, actually. I've learned a lot. Uh, yeah, and uh, and hopefully the listeners have as well. Mm. Uh, well, that's it for this week's Triple Bill. Uh, thanks to James, Owen, Jerry, and I'll thank myself again, because uh, it needs to be done. Thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music. Thanks for listening. Oh, and quickly, James, what's next week's Triple Bill topic? Next week's Triple Bill, I believe, uh, I'm, not going to I'm, I'm pretty sure it's um, uh, best Blu-ray DVD special features that you should be investigating because I, I used to be the type of person that would watch a film and I didn't really go through the, the extras and there's some fascinating ones on there. So we're going to be giving you our favourite ones that you should go and search out. Lovely. Yes, see you next week.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. He wasn't going to be able to support her. Um, and then he got successful, so she took it back. Um, and then all the way through the jazz age, all that kind of glamour and glitz and everything, they, you know, they were famous, famously friends with Hemingway and all that kind of cast that were in uh, Midnight in Paris. And sort of Hemingway hated Zelda, basically. So you would want Hemingway in there as well as that, that extra dynamic. Hemingway thought she was insane. Uh, and said that she was bad front for him and made him drink so that he didn't write and things like that. Um, and it's a great, it's a real passionate story. The, she basically went mental. She developed schizophrenia and stuff. And, and he basically spent most of the 30s um, kind of writing a lot of short stories and, and, and then novels. He wrote Tender as the Night during this period. Um and he kind of wrote it so that he could pay for a for medical bills for a psychiatric treatment. So he, he, that's the kind of the kind of thing. And, and if anybody's read Tender as the Night, it's, it's kind of autobiographical. Um, tells the story of you know someone marrying someone who, who turns out to be uh, is you know it's a psychiatrist who marries one of his patients, and it's all about struggles with mental illness in a marriage and things. It would be a fantastic story. Um, I, I'd just love to see it. But I, again, I'm I'm really like him as an author and I like his books and um, you know it's, it'd have everything it'd have love it'd have hate uh, it'd have mental illness alcoholism uh, glitzy parties with all this crazy horribleness underneath um, you know Fitzgerald dying of TB and all sorts of stuff I think that's I think that was what eventually killed him um, well he had a heart attack but he had TB and it weakened him and then you know, she ended up dying in a, in a fire in a mental asylum. That's how she died. So it's a very sad story, but I, I would love to see it made. Wow, yeah. I want to see it made now. Uh, all I know really about that story is what I've seen in Midnight in Paris. So you've really expanded on that. And no, I'm, I'm all over I've, I've green-lighted it. It's going ahead. <laughs> Excellent. What's, what's up next then, Jerry? It's a good start. Right, my next one. Uh, we're going for a more British one. I'm going for a real multinational selection of places here. Well, going for a British one, one that I won't have to tell as much of a story with, I hope, to our listeners, uh, apart from the numerous, well, well, miscellaneous Australians and Americans who listen to us, apparently. Hello. Um, the story of Dr. David Kelly, which actually someone on the forum suggested. They uh, did, yeah. And I was like, be quiet, be quiet, don't talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you know, uh, Dr. David Kelly was a scientist. He was an expert on uh, biological weapons, worked for the MOD, uh, the Ministry of Defense for the non-Brits, um, and he was a weapons inspector in Iraq and things. And he, he, he had a, a conversation with a journalist um, about the British government's alleged um, sort of conspiracy about uh, weapons of mass destruction and Iraq. Let's, let's keep it at that. And... <laughs> He was um, called up before a parliamentary select committee and was questioned really harshly and aggressively. And then he was found dead two days later. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories and things that, you know, the official firms, they commit suicide. And then there was all sorts of things. 
um, whether he was pushed. And there was a real, you know, there was a full inquiry set up, the Hutton inquiry was set up to it. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of things about whether the, the media reports about it and everything were, were sort of distressing him and, and the pressure on him sort of drew, drew him to suicide. So I think you could make, I mean, I don't know much about the guy before the whole controversy came about, but I think even just that short period of time, I mean, it, it's not a very long period of time at all. Um, it was, it was kind of all took place in July. He had this, this off the record discussion with a journalist and then, I think he was, he was dead, uh, by the 17th or 18th, 17th. Um, so, you know, you could just do that very short period. You could make it very sort of dynamic, bit of a political thriller. Obviously, as regular listeners will know, there's only one director I want for this political th- thriller. It's Thomas Alfredson who directed Tink Tink Soldiers. And again, David Kelly, bit of a, oh, I think he's about 59 at the time. Um, Gary, Gary Oldman's pretty good at playing old guys. We'll get, we'll get him back. It's a very recurring theme, although I would like to see some sort of, um, you know, established British actors. There's a lot of established British actors around that age who could play it, just need to grow a beard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you would, you know, you need someone like that, like, like Alfredson and, and, and those kind of script writers as well, who would, um, be able to craft the sort of complexities and the political, uh, maneuvering and make a real film out of it. I think, um, it, it has the potential for that, definitely. I mean, it's a story I think most of us are familiar with, and you know, we followed it all the time. So it'd be nice if they could get some kind of inside insights onto that as well, because he's about it. Um, and, you know, whether he had heart disease and, and the, the drug he was on for his heart disease and things, whether he, that, he wouldn't have actually killed himself, he was a normal person and things like that. Um, it's still ongoing, so I think that's probably going to, Cause it, this, you know, sort of ongoing. There's, there's not really been any answers about it, so I think that will probably hinder it being made in all actuality. But yeah, I think, I think it's one of those stories that I like political intrigue, thrillers, and conspiracy things, and it wouldn't have time travel to fuck with your head, Steve, so you'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Right, my third one. We have done, I've done America, done Britain. Um, now I'm going to go a bit more out there. And I'm going to say, guy you've probably never heard of now, which is Alexander Karelin. Anybody heard of him? I know his name, but I don't know why. I, I think I might have mentioned it last last week. I think I might have just said, oh, I'm having him before anybody does it. Okay. Alexander Karelin. The guy's whole life is like some kind of Greek myth, right? He was born, he was a 15-pound baby, right? Anybody who's familiar with childbirth and things. That is an enormous baby. Um, born to a five foot six mother in Siberia. So already you know he's a bad <laughs> right? Um, and he, he basically spent his childhood like fucking around in the wilds of Siberia, you know, hunting sable and things like that. They generally in uh, going around on skis in horrendous weather conditions. Um, he took up uh, wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, you know, the proper stuff, the, the things actually real sort of big oiled up steroid ridden men throwing each other around and, and jumping. Um he basically his he was incredible at, at wrestling, but he he took up the sport as a teenager and broke his leg really badly when he was about fifteen. And I mean like he practically exploded his, his femur. I mean he he smashed his leg to pieces and his mother being, you know, like all mothers, she was like, No, no, you can't do wrestling anymore. 
I don't want you doing that. You don't want her in. And his response was to say, I'm not uh, giving in to the sport that took my leg. Right? (laughs) And he, he, you know, he rehabbed his injury by going around on skis and hunting sable, as I say. Um, And he, in international competition from 1987 to the year 2000, he was undefeated in international competition for, for 13 years. And for six years of that, he didn't give up a single point, which if you know anything about Greco is pretty amazing. Um, he retired in 2000 after the gold medal match at the Sydney Olympics because he, he had one of the biggest upsets in history against some fat American bloke um, who he'd previously beaten and stuff. It was it was crazy. Um, he was known as the experiment, right? Because he was, you know, he was this crazy big Russian guy. Um, and everyone assumed that he was, you know, one of these Soviet athletes, and, and people said he must he must have been created by the Soviets in some kind of genetic experiment to create a super or a super athlete. And um, he was six foot three. He weighed 130 kilos, which is 286 pounds. So he was one big man, um, and he was in the heaviest weight class. So all these guys were massive, you know, 300 pound guys, uh, and he was ripped to shreds. And uh, if you Google image this guy, he's, he, you know, he's a, he's a monster. And he was famous for his Corellin lift, right? Which um, he used to basically pick people, when people were on the floor, he used to just pick them up and like, basically like a suplex in wrestling, but he was doing it for real on three. <laughs> Fighting very hard not to do this. And he was just so hard that he, he just lifted them up and threw these 300 pound men around and slammed people around. There's, there's great YouTube videos of him just destroying people. <laughs> uh, and basically, these guys who, you know, world-class wrestlers in world championships and things in the Olympics would decide that rather than get their ass kicked by Corellin, the easiest thing was to lay down on their bellies so that you couldn't get them on their back and, and win. So um, he developed this move, which was basically to pick them up and throw them around to get around people. guy <laughs> <laughs> was, was amazing. I mean, people in light, I'm assured that people in light... The, the strength that you need to lift heavyweight 300 pound men around is just it's incredible um, in addition to his physical attributes he also holds a PhD and has a law degree um, he used to fly around in a private helicopter with two masseuses in it to, you know, to give him massages when he won and <laughs> even better he used to go well, you know, he'd compete, win gold medals, world championships uh, Olympics and all this and then he would just um, go home and watch the opera and, and read books and, and, and things like that and go to the ballet. He's probably the only man in the world who can go to the opera and the ballet and not one person would ever dream of calling him gay. Um, he's now he retired after that famous loss, um, even though he was so dominant, and he began a political career, and he's now a member of Vladimir Putin's party. He's the representative of his region in, in Siberia. Um and he's now a politician. He's, he's he's quite an ugly bloke, as you would imagine. Somebody spent his entire life. I, I bet Putin could take him in a fight, though. Uh, he's probably mad at that party. You, you, you could probably take Putin, actually. Putin, <laughs> he like you know, probably wrestles bears in his spare time. But Karelin probably just like you know, the bears won't fight Karelin because he's that hard. <laughs> <laughs> so should we expect to see him in Expendables Three with Ian part of his new crew? Not any sense, yeah. He, but he would probably. Just and do it himself because he's just hard. He was he was known as the experiment, right? And he's really known for this quote. He's really famous. Um, people said, you know, they said, why do you think everyone calls you the experiment? And he says, oh, it's just because everyone doesn't understand because I train every single day in my life as they have never trained a day in theirs. 
Um, he used to routinely bench press 400 pounds every single day of his life in his training center. I mean, he was just a machine. But if, if you ever read stuff about this guy, he's, he's just incredible. Um, on to the film. Cause it's a bit more story to explain with that one. <sighs> you need a, a big bloke. Um, I thought about Tom Hardy because he's, you know, he's been doing big bulky roles recently, mm-hmm. but he's far too good looking to play Corelli. Um, Corelli is one ugly man. Um, basically just get any wrestler, some, some big massive guy. You know, I thought. Could you know, Ron Perlman do it? I don't. He, he's ugly enough. <laughs> you're producing that though. <laughs> Not need or big. Kurt Angle was was actually reasonably decent in Warrior playing mm. um Karelin like. Yeah. The other badass thing about Karelin. Uh, anybody played Street Fighter? Yeah. Yeah. Character of Zangief is based on Alexander Karelin. Awesome. Uh, so basically I get any rest I thought Kurt Angle was pretty decent you know Um, speaking of Warrior Gavin O'Connor who directed Warrior would probably be able to do a decent job of this guy's life but actually I think the best one would be someone like um, John McTiernan you know a guy who did Predator Mm -hmm. uh, Hunt for Red October all that kind of thing Mm -hmm. he would have to resolve his legal problems first because he's recently been sentenced to jail for some kind of weird investigation thing during the filming of Rollerball. Imagine going, imagine making that film and then going to prison over something to do with Rollerball. Oh dear, yeah. But yeah, I think you need a good action director in there. You're going to tell a story of this guy's life, but also, you know, he had a wife and kids and he would just go home on the weekend and just watch the opera and ballet and read and do his PhD. And he was just... Imagine. So yeah, that's my three. I think his, his life would... It's like a myth. His whole life is like some kind of Greek myth. He's like a modern-day Hercules. Although, a big respect to his mother, who was five or six, and managed to give birth to that monster. They're <laughs> <laughs> thinking about. But yeah, this guy's awesome. If you ever just stick him in Google, have a look at some of the YouTube videos, or have a look at uh, the images of him. He was a terrifying guy. And then just read, the, there's a website called Badass of the Week, who've done an excellent piece on him. Um, he's, he's just incredible. I'll try and put a link to some YouTube videos on the blo- on this blog because I think people need to see this man. If you like Kane in the Dark Knight Rises, right, you, you're gonna you're gonna love this guy because I think <laughs> we will see. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, um, I guess you're leaving us now, Jerry. Yes, I am off my jet set lifestyle. Yeah, have a lovely time. We'll see you for have fun. We'll, we'll see you for Total Recall. Yeah, I will. I will be back for the next week. Uh, my jet set lifestyle is not that. <laughs> or jet sets, indeed. I'm only going. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to move on to my choices because I can't wait to tell the story of this brilliant person. Oh, before I go, I would just like to endorse wholeheartedly Steve's Steve's choice here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start off. At the end of this guy's story, well, not quite the end, but near the end. Um, is this how the film would go as well? Or yes. going to start, a, yeah, I like it. Yeah, this is, the way I do the film, I'll do that first before I go on to this guy's story. Um, the way I do the film was, you know, in a way of, if something like Forrest Gump, where he's sort of telling his life story to, to people. Um, yeah. And... But basically, it started off like this. Basically, this guy, his name was Jack Churchill, or to give him his full name, John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming 
uh, Churchill, nicknamed Jack or Mad Jack. Uh, you know, once in a while you hear, you know how Brits get their reputation as being eccentric? <laughs> this, this, this guy is exactly why. This is, this is why people think of Brits as being eccentric. I'll start the story. Basically, um, I'm not sure if he's retired, um, or sort of when he's one of his last few jobs after leaving the military, but he would, this is how it says on Wikipedia, he would startle train conductors and passengers by throwing his Apache case out of the window each day on the ride home. He later explained <laughs> that he was just tossing it into his back garden so he didn't have to carry it home from the station. <laughs> This this is where I'm starting. So I'd start with yeah. I'd start with him doing this for like a week on a train, and some 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 guy or some child is like, just, "What the hell is he doing?" and goes and asks him, and then he starts recounting his life story to him. Um, but yeah, like Reggie Perrin so far. But he's just, <laughs> but he's just so brilliant. Um, it, yeah, he was in he he was he even had roles in films. But his his major success, or you know, you know, big part of his life was in the Second World War. Um, he <laughs> he was the only person in World War Two to have killed an enemy with a longbow. <laughs> <laughs> he would often he would actually go into every battle or every you know engagement or whatever during the war armed with his longbow and arrows round his neck. His bagpipes under his arm and a Scottish broadsword. I don't know if he had a gun. There's no, there's no reference to him using a gun ever in, in anything I've read about him. There's nothing about a gun. It's all broadswords, longbows, and bagpipes in World War Two. He's actually quoted as saying, "Any officer who goes into action without his sword is improperly armed." <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's times where. Um, let me just find it. He was, he sort of, you know, just such a success in war. He got the military cross, distinguished service honour. Um, but there's times where, you know, a mortar shell had killed or wounded everyone in his, in his troop of commandos other than him. And as the Germans advanced, he was playing Will You Know Come Back Again on his bagpipes. <laughs> as Germans are advancing at him and he didn't die. Wow. He, he escaped as a prisoner of war. He's just, he joined the commandos because he didn't know what it was, but it sounded dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it just, his story only gets better. He wanted to transfer to, um, the Pacific Theatre in, in World War Two, and he ended up getting to Burma, but then the nuclear bombs were uh, dropped on Japan. He he was quoted as saying, "If it wasn't for those damn Yanks, we could have kept the war going another ten years." <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> then he was uh he appeared as an apart uh, as an archer in uh, the 1946 film Ivanhoe. <laughs> he saved 700 Jewish doctor students and patients um, from uh, attack by Arabs in 1948. Um, and he moved to Australia and become a prominent surfer. <laughs> wow. What a career. He's moved, he moved back to England um, and become the first man to ride the River Seven's five-foot tidal bore, which 
apparently is a big deal in surfing, my re- my research tells me. Uh, and he designed his own surfboard. He he needs a TV series, not just a film. <laughs> he just... He's got a profile to rival Kim Jong-il, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Some of the stuff in it's just unbelievable. Yeah, he was, he, was, um, he, was flown, he was captured by the Germans when he was pay, playing his bagpipes. He was knocked unconscious by a grenade. Um, <laughs> just knocked unconscious as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> escape, escape from the prisoner of war camp. Managed to walk to the Baltic coast where they were arrested again. And then managed to escape once more. Just typical, you know, like I said earlier, when, when like, Americans or whoever describe Brits as eccentric, it's because of people like him. Yeah. Uh, he died aged 89 in 1996. Oh, but I'm trying wow. to, I'm trying to think who I'd have playing the older version of him, sort of, you know, intro- doing the Forrest Gump bit, telling his life story. It's got to be someone British. I'm thinking just someone like Jim Broadbent. Yeah. But mm. for the main actual part of him as a young man throughout his life, I'm thinking of someone eccentric, somebody who's, you know, a bit mad. Um, yeah. But can do, that can do a bit of seriousness as well. I'm thinking, give him a film role, the current Doctor Who, Matt Smith. Oh, all left field, but yeah. I like it. <laughs> I, I certainly Very think he can. Field, but yeah. He can certainly do eccentric. He's got he's got crazy. Yeah, yeah. He can do crazy, definitely. Yeah. Um but it would probably be David Kennan, I would have thought would be better. He's already Scottish for a star. <laughs> um True. But, Yeah, um I'm not as up on directors as the rest of you, so I'm gonna challenge you lot with picking a director for my films. Um do you know what? Could could I just? There's one way you could go here, and I nearly had him directing one of mine until I decided to make it a bit more serious. But could, is there an argument for Tarantino here? There could well be. He does like to do. An, he does like to do another crazy bastard. You know, because because this man sounds like a comic book. This this uh, man you know, this cartoon this violence. This man could have been part of the Inglorious Bastards. That's what I'm thinking. Mm. I, I think it's almost like. Quentin Tarantino's version of what every soldier was like in World War Two kind of thing. And that's that's where I'm coming from there. Although if you wanted to treat it a bit more seriously, um I um, oh, I don't know. Spielberg does quite um big war films, doesn't he? I mean he did uh War Wars and Saving Private Ryan and stuff, so I suppose yes. he would be a fairly safe choice. But, um, I suppose it depends on how you wanted to go with it, but yeah. But but listeners, there's no plans to make a film about this guy at the moment, so please read what? up read up about him. Stick well, Jack I'll... stick Jack Churchill into Google because he is an absolute hero of life size proportions. Excellent choice, Steve. Any <laughs> anyone who throws his case off a train into his garden because he can't. He bothered to carry it home from the station. It's just <laughs> That's a lovely little touch. I like how you've opened the film with that as well. It's a lovely little. I think touch. it's best to open it with that rather than end it with that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my second biopic—they're all biopics or biopics, uh, whichever, which, whichever way we're going with that—is <laughs> given that we all met on a football forum. I think we need to pick a footballer. I think it needs to be one of the most, I don't know, is it, you know, one of the most colourful, entertaining 
and best footballers that the planet's ever seen. And it was a toss-up for my list between... It was my, my list. It was a toss-up between George Best and Diego Maradona. I've gone for Diego Maradona. Yes, yes, there needs to be a Maradona film. The man is an absolute lunatic. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd start it, I wouldn't start it from childhood. I'd start it from probably him making his debut for Boca Juniors. Then you can transfer, you know, when he moves to Barcelona for £5 million. You can go for all the World Cups, the hand of God. You know, the move to Napoli where he pretty much single-handedly wins in the league. There's all the links with the Mafia as well while he's living in Napoli. And then you can go into his descent into drug abuse that sort of... Well, it doesn't peak at USA 94 where he was banned, but, you know, because he did sort of go a bit mad on it then and balloon yeah, to, but, to disproportionate yeah, sizes. But, you know, and then you could... You know, you could go on to his... And then you could sort of end it there, or you could carry on to his management of the Argentina side at the at the World Cup uh, in 2010. But you know, for Big so- Maradona. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, redemption. I think having him become the manager of Argentina would be a great way to do yeah. sort of close yeah. off. But, but, I mean, for such a world class talent with such a brilliantly interesting history and personality, and everything that's gone on off the pitch as well, I think it needs to be made in, you know, it needs to be made into a Hollywood film. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no, 100%. Who are you having playing Maradona, then? Well, this is a challenge. I was I was looking for somebody, I thought I wanted to go a bit authentic and go with somebody a bit Spanishy, mm. if that makes sense. And the only yeah. person I really knew other than Antonio Banderas, so I wasn't going for him. <laughs> Was tragically miscast. Yeah. <laughs> was he clinched? He's clinched this role after appearing as Cristiano Ronaldo in a Nike advert. No, I've right. not seen it. <laughs> uh, from the World Cup in 2010, Gael Garcia Bernal. Oh, is he the guy who did um, uh, the motorcycle diaries? Um, appeared as Shane yes. in yes. diaries. Yes. Yes. I was going to suggest him, good work, yes, yes, we're on the same page here. I thought I'd get somebody, you know, who actually speaks a language and could probably, you know, look a bit more the part than, like, a typical Hollywood yeah. person. You could have cast Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> 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 and just, like, hobbitised him so that he looked short. <laughs> but, yeah, I've, you know, they've got to make a film with Diego Maradona just because... You know, it's between him and George Best of a world-class player who's off the pitch, got a brilliant sort of character and story. Because there's people like Pele, who is world-class, but off the mm. pitch, other than slagging off Maradona every chance he gets and yeah. advertising Viagra, he doesn't. He's not really that interesting. He's not an interesting person, no. You're you exactly know. right. But you know, Maradona's had Maradona was well in with the mafia when he played for Napoli. Yeah. And was Maradona's got the more extreme highs and lows yeah. compared to George Best. George yeah. Best was, you know, he he did very well for a home nations player, yeah. uh, but never appeared at a world, never won a World Cup basically single handedly. Yeah. But also never had, you know, and you know the whole Napoli thing. The fact that Maradona won titles for Napoli is ridiculous. Napoli should never have been near the Scudetto. No. Um, but that's amazing highs. But then, yeah, you've got the mafia, the drugs, 
um, the big fat Maradona. <laughs> He's loaded. Who's hanging out with Castro? Pardon? Who's hanging out Frank with Castro? Castro yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he's fu- he is the most interesting footballer um, that has lived. So, who would, who would you guys have directing my Maradona masterpiece? He'd probably be up for doing I, it himself. Yeah, quite quite possibly. Do you know, I, I'm thinking Steven Soderbergh. I want it quite... I want this really <laughs> realistic. That would be a very, uh, yeah, realistic, <laughs> low drama piece. I think it needs to be something a little a bit more crazy. Someone who's can really ramp up this kind of insanity of Maradona's life, but I have no idea who that could be. And I mean, you don't, I suppose you don't really have to sort of refilm the on-pitch moments. You could just take it from footage. Yeah. You mm, could just show yeah. the hand of God. You could show that uh, drug fueled celebration at USA 94 where he's yeah. pretty much ripping the camera out of the cameraman's hands. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. I'm, again, greenlit. I'm all over that. <laughs> if any of our film suggestions start getting made, do we sort of, you know, like out of the uh, blue, do we kind of. Got stamp on this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm ready to sue. Don't yeah. you worry. Yeah. With lawyers on, on retainer. <laughs> This is copyright now. We've committed yeah. it to, uh, to yeah. audio, yeah. If uh, anyone's thinking of making... the marbles of um, us claiming the copyright on other people. If anyone is listening and, you, and someone like Mr. Soderbergh does decide to make a Diego Maradona film, I will not sue if I can have a cameo as Ozzy Ardiles. <laughs> That's so, a fair deal. I, I want to be Claudio Canigia. <laughs> um, and my final one, I think we might have to wait um, a few years for this one to be made, as the decision on him was only made today. Uh, but oh. Anders, oh. Anders Breivik, I just think, you know, it's obviously a tragic and horrible story, and he's not, you know, he's, well, he's not insane, apparently. Um but I think, you know, as, as a look at one of the most sort of cynical serial killers there's been, somebody who sort of shows no remorse for what he's done and is sort of proud, if anything, of what he's done and committed such awful atrocities, a, a film looking into him could be fantastic. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there, Steve. Yeah, I think, to be honest, you know, we've... We're, we're comfortable with films about Hitler now, so yeah, yeah. at some point. Look, yeah, I think, I think we'll have to wait a little while for it to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I can't imagine many actors at the moment taking that. No. I think, I've, yeah, I think we'd have, like no, I think we'd have to, you know, like I say, wait, wait a while for it, but I think the best way yeah. to do the film would be to look into what the judge's decision on whether he's sane or not, because that seems to have been a massive part of the trial. Whether yeah. he's been saying that he's not sane all along, he's, uh, he's saying that he is sane all along. Um, mm. But obviously, there's been the court and you know debating whether he is sane or whether he's insane. Or and I think you know to look at it that way, whether somebody like him who's done what he has done is actually sane or not, could be the best way to go about it. More a, a, a tribulation yeah. from the judge's point of view, whether to before sentencing him for his crimes, mm. deciding. His mental state. A question, yeah, you're exactly right. The, the, the sanity 
and morality and questions. Oh, that's a very interesting way to look. Because, you know, just you know, without wanting to get political or, or uh, philosophical or anything, you do think anyone who kills that many people just can't be sane, surely. But the, he, the, but the very fact that they've done it... But throughout the whole uh, thing, he's he's pleaded that he is sane. He's you know yeah, claimed that he is sane, and he's been he's been so callous and shown no remorse and yeah. a kind of arrogance about it as well. Yeah, he's a he is a fascinating character. Yeah, uh, I, you can't you can't avoid that. It, it, it would be fascinating to know what is going on inside his mind. But yeah. like yeah, like I watched. I watched a made-up film uh, last week, didn't I? Rampage, uh, about a shooting. And the fact that that didn't even exist, that wasn't based on a real shooting, that was still really disturbing for me to watch. So, yeah, no, I think you're right, Steve. I think at some point a film will be made about it, um, and probably sooner than we think. Um, I but, think... yeah, no, it will be interesting to see where they go with that. I mean, I think... I'll tell you who would be good for a film like that, actually, is uh, Cronenberg. I think he could do something, or, or even, um, you know, Soderbergh, who you mentioned earlier, doing something, that idea of having it about the character, but without showing him, you know, showing yeah. people. Yeah, that, not that's really, really satisfaction. Yeah, because yeah. if he's alive, you potentially glorifying what he's done. Uh, so, yeah, it, almost making a film about it, but without a, being about what he did, that would be very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Without, you could do it perhaps even without mentioning his name or anything, and it would just be yeah. one of these kind of fascinating um, psychoanalysis kind of films. You know? mm. yeah. I mean, I think if really anyone was to play Brevik, I think Tom Hardy has played some nutters before and could probably pull off the role. I wouldn't be too concerned about a Scandinavian accent because, you know, Daniel Craig didn't bother in a girl with a dragon <laughs> tattoo, so why should anyone else try it? But, you know, he's played Bronson. Bane was... a, a Pretty maniacal character as well. It's Bronson as well. He is brilliant. Bronson's a mess of a film. Mm. Um, but he and Bronson in real life is a nasty, nasty character. Mm. And in a way, you, do, you know, it, so he's got inside the mind of one of these people. Bronson's no Brevik, but he is a nasty, nasty piece of work. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I get to play the judge though. So yeah, you need you yeah. need some gravitas there, don't yeah. you? Like John Hurt. I always yeah. like John Hurt. <laughs> uh, should we move on to you then, James? Yes, okay. So, uh, right, I'm just turning on the interior light of my car now. Uh, for those of you <laughs> joining us late. I'm recording <laughs> my car today. Um, Which kind of car is it? It's a Nissan Micra. I'm an old woman. Nissan uh, Micra. Uh, we've got a Micra as well. No. Yeah, I just pop around the city. It's got great mileage. <laughs> Nissan Micra, the official car of the failed critic yeah. podcast. Other cars are available. Yes. <laughs> oh, we're turning into some kind of top gear now. It's like excellent. Right. Um, yeah, my three. So the first one I'm going to talk about, um, I can't, there has been a film made about it, but in the 60s, and I believe starring Christopher Lee, uh, but not one since, and I can't believe that. So it's about uh, Grigori Rasputin. Um those of you who don't know about Rasputin or only know him from the Boney M song, uh, he was, of course, <laughs> Russian's greatest love machine. Um, you have to sing a bit now. You, you bought the song, you've got to sing some of it. Rah, rah, Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. Because I'm in a car and no one else can hear me. No <laughs> shame there. Um, yeah, but basically, uh, 
he is perceived as having influenced uh, the latter days of the Russian Emperor Nicholas II, uh, his wife Alexandra, and their son Alexei. Uh, some people call him the Mad Monk, uh, which might be, well be the title of my film. Um, there's not a lot known about his childhood, except the fact that both his siblings do, uh, fell into a pond and he jumped in to save them. They pulled out, um, but they later died of pneumonia. That quite affected him. Um, he got really religious uh, and turned towards the life of a religious mystic and wanderer. He fell in with a cult whose um, services ended in physical exhaustion. There were rumours of religious and sexual ecstasy, so you can see where I'm going with the build-up of his younger character. Ended up wandering as a pilgrim, and then, in the end, the Russian royal family searched him out because their youngest son suffered from haemophilia, which was common amongst all of the um, descendants of Queen Victoria, uh, and they were descendants of Queen Victoria. Now, he ended up in the court of the, uh, the emperor then, and basically just became a massive politician. He was really in charge of Russia. Became too much, and then he got assassinated, but... I'd build up half the film would be about his life and then the rest of it would be about the night of the assassination, which is just, it's amazing. Uh, it, it's become legend. And for, again, for those of you who don't know about what happened that night, um, some friends uh, and a right-wing politician invited him down to a cellar uh, and their plan was, right, we need to kill him quite quickly and get rid of the body before sunlight. They fed him cakes and red wine laced with cyanide and apparently there was enough cyanide to kill five men in what he consumed, and he just stood there, did, did nothing to him. Um, so then what, apparently there was a rumour that he had developed an immunity to poison, which is just brilliant. Uh, someone had already tried to kill him previously by stabbing him uh, as well, and he just shrugged that off as well. So, um, yeah, determined to finish the job, Prince Yusperov, um, he became anxious uh, that he was going to live until morning and they might not be able to get rid of his body. So in the end, uh, they took him out the back and beat the crap out of him um, and just kept smacking him in, uh, out in the freezing cold back coat. And then he opened his eyes. They thought they'd beaten him to death. And then he opened his eyes and he lunged at the guy who'd beaten him to death and attempted to strangle him. And then uh, everyone started shooting at him. And he was hit three times in the back. And he fell again, and they still, they then clubbed him into submission again, um, and apparently severed his penis. Uh, a bit harsh, I think. Um, <laughs> and then they wrapped his body in a carpet and threw him into the river. But he broke out of the carpet, uh, but sadly drowned. Uh, and at his post-mortem, they found, that's where they found the poison that had enough cyanide to kill five men. And also, uh, there was water in his lungs, which means he was alive when he went into that river. Um, it's just an incredible story. Now, I'd, I'd like to see more of that. We've mentioned him already. I want David Cronenberg directing this, and I want to reunite him with Viggo Mortensen uh, as Rasputin. He can grow a good beard. That's definitely a good start, I believe. From the Boney M song, uh, from the video, I'm pretty sure Rasputin had a beard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and also, he just did some brilliant work with uh, Mortensen in A History of Violence, Eastern Promise. He knows how to handle on-screen violence. I think Mortensen will bring a real gravitas to this role. So that's my, Rasputin, the movie. My my other idea was to have Tarantino direct Rasputin coming back from the dead and hunting down everyone who tried to kill him. Uh, but that's not technically based on the true story, so I've been breaking my own rules there.
I don't want to disappoint you though, uh, James, because you've got a brilliant idea. Yeah. But wasn't there a film in the nineties about Rasputin with Alan Rickman? I, I do you know I searched I searched for films about Rasputin. I honestly didn't see that one. I saw one in the sixties with I think Christopher Lee, or it might have been um, oh who, uh, Vincent Price. But okay. I. I Oh, the 90s one. But I'm going to look that up now, because if there is a film about Rasputin, I want to see it. Cause he it might have great. just been a TV film, but I'm sure it was yeah. Alan Rickman. Okay, I'll look into that. Thank you. But um, no, the idea thing's brilliant, though. I love the idea of um, <laughs> having uh, Cronenberg do it, because he, I mean, I mentioned him earlier, I think he's brilliant at this sort of psychological violence and stuff, and he'd be perfect for what happened to Rasputin in the end. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'd love to see that, yeah. And and I love Mortensen, I can watch Mortensen in anything. Mm. My my second film is definitely a strict biopic this time. We've talked about someone who uh, uh, has is at the top of their game in terms of sport previously. Um, how about someone who's at the top of their game in a number of sports? I'm going to talk about Charles Burgess Fry, otherwise known as C.B. Fry. I'm hoping Steve's going to get some recognition here because not only did he play for Southampton in an FA Cup final, um, but he also held the world record for long jump, which he set while he was a student at Oxford. He played first-class cricket for Sussex and for England. He was also uh, a brilliant golfer. He became a diplomat and was offered the throne of Albania. Was he the, was he the guy who could jump? Backwards, standing onto a mantelpiece. That's it, and he could still do that in his seventies, apparently, from a standing <laughs> jump, jump backwards onto a mantelpiece. Uh, he was a sportsman, a politician, an academic, a writer. Um, but yeah, his first love was cricket, and he was a brilliant cricketer. But it's a brilliant story, actually, of someone who comes from quite humble beginnings. You think back in, he was born in 1872 and died in 1956. His family had once been wealthy, but by the time he was born, they, they weren't prosperous at all. He had to win a scholarship to Repton School, um, and he was second to last in his form. His scholarship was in jeopardy, but he just worked really hard to gain promotion every time. Um, while he was at Oxford, someone, a journalist, noticed that the great all-rounder, as they called him, was just smoking a pipe while he was on his way to do a long jump. And his thoughts <laughs> on the long jump were, it's the best fun in the world. One spring up, and then the air rushes past you in a hurricane, and there you are on your feet, safe and sound. That was his technique. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he liked golf, but saw it as glorified croquet. Um, and the, the journalist, his thoughts on Fry were, I could not but envy the young athletes with his offhand ways and transparent happiness. I felt altogether that I should like to be Fry of Wadham myself. Um, yeah, in the sports reference book, Wisdom at the time, it stated that Fry was a fine boxer a passable golfer, swimmer, scholar, tennis player, and javelin thrower as well. Um, and I don't know if uh, we've got any cricket fans that listen to this, but his first-class cricket stats at the end of his career, he had a batting average of over 50 and a bowling average of 29.34. Now, he was up there with both of them, basically. Oh, he also played for rugby's Barbarians team at the same time as well. He is an incredible man, uh, and... I'd, I'd like to see this directed by Joe Wright, who I think did a very good job with Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. He can do period pieces very well. Uh, and, oh, I've, I've got to get, I'm having Michael Fassbender as CB Fry. Uh, <laughs> as the, uh, I think he's got the athleticism, he's got the charm, 
uh, and I think he could do a brilliant job with this. So that that's my second choice is the story of CB Fry. And then finally, uh, has anyone ever heard of Jasper Menkeling? Mas- sorry, Maskeling. Can't no. say I have. No. Brit- he was a British stage magician in the 1930s and 40s. And this is another brilliant eccentric in the Second World War. So this could be part... We could start a studio here, Steve, to make films about these guys. Um, he was a, from a family of stage magicians. Uh, he could trace his ancestry to a royal astronomer. Um, but he's most remembered for his works for British military intelligence during the Second World War. He joined the Royal Engineers uh, when war broke out. And he started off uh, just entertaining the troops as a magician. And he said, no, no, I, I can do more. I can really help the war effort. So they said, I'll prove it to us then. So he made a warship disappear in the Thames, kind of like David Copperfield would have done like in the early 40s. Now, fair enough, you'll do for us, son. Um, <laughs> he got to handpick his own um, artists, magicians and carpenters and criminals and they were in a group called the A-Force, a.k.a. the Magic Gang. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Um, but they built loads of illusions uh, across the theatre of war. Uh, they Probably their biggest one is they concealed Alexandria, uh, the Egyptian city. They con- the, the port, really important, they concealed it from German bombers. And to do that, he built a mock-up city with the nightlights of Alexandria in a bay three miles away and then hid Alexandria overnight. That is incredible. Um, To mask the Suez Canal, one of the most important pieces of uh, uh, transportation in in the war, um, couldn't build a fake canal. Uh, The whole area was landlocked around there. So he just built the biggest disco ball in the world, basically which dazzled and blinded pilots for nine miles around. Um, the man is awesome. He also uh, made Rommel, uh, they disguised, they, at one point they were going to attack from the south. He was helping Montgomery, uh, but they wanted the Germans to think they were going to attack from the north. So he disguised 2,000 tanks of trucks and then came up with 1,000 fake tanks at the top to uh, and... Rommel completely fell for it, and that really helped uh, Montgomery win one of the great battles there. The weird thing is, though, there's so little in terms of official sources that corroborates anything that he's done, and most of it comes from his own memoirs. And so there is this real element of, actually, did any of this happen? Which is why I'm going to have it directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, uh, Apparently, he then got bored of the army. Um, the Magic Gang disbanded after the battle. Winston Churchill did praise his efforts, although he didn't get like the awards that he wanted. So he published a book about his exploits, and then he later moved to Kenya and founded a uh, a driving school in Kenya, uh, which is quite interesting. I thought. Um, so we're going to start in Kenya in the early 1970s, just before he dies. Uh, and as it's a Christopher Nolan film, old Jasper is going to be played by Michael Caine, obviously. Um, as it's a Christopher Nolan film, there's going to be an American journalist played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt who stumbles across this angry, drunken man in later, year, later years who hasn't got the, the recognition that he wants and starts telling this story and weaving this story. Maybe 
you know, kind of trying to prove he still has the, the illusion skills to the man in present day. And it's going to be then told in flashback. And I think, I, you know, as it is a Christopher Nolan film, I'm going to have Killian Murphy playing young masculine um, and just telling the story of how he turned uh, the tide. Also, I don't know if you've heard of someone called Agent Zigzag, but he was the most successful, and this is officially recorded, he was the most successful double agent we had during the Second World War. And apparently Masculine worked with him a lot and provided a lot of false information for him as well. So if what he says is true, he helped turn the tide of the Second World War, but all we've got is his word for it. Oh. <laughs> Seems like he's, he's a very interesting man. Yes, uh, but yeah, he produced a book which I'm I'm waiting. I've, I've managed to track down on eBay, and I'm waiting for it now because maybe I could write this. But uh, his book is called Magic Top Secret, which might which also might be the name of the film. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably the name of um, Paul Daniel's autobiography. <laughs> well. Um, on to Owen then. Okay, so um, my first choice is probably slightly predictable for those people that actually know me quite well. Uh, has anyone seen the film Last Days by Gus Van Sant? No. No, I haven't. It's kind of an arty-farty story um, or film, which is essentially the story of Kurt Cobain's Last Days, although it's not specifically about Cobain. It's about an imaginary rock star called Blake. But, you know, it's quite obviously actually about Kurt Cobain. They've just changed the names, some, some of the details. So my plan is, why not do it properly? I did have an initial idea of doing the film instead of this one about Harry Houdini. And then I looked up on Wikipedia and I thought, shit, there's a film that was released in like 2007 starring Guy Pearce, which is exactly the story that I had written down. So that kind of scuppered my ideas for that. Oh. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, it completely passed me by. I didn't even know it existed. But it is almost uncannily exactly what I had planned. So I'll have to try and watch that thing. But anyway, <laughs> this is, um, instead, it's about Kurt Cobain. I think it could, you could do something, instead of like Gus Van Sandsville, which I think it takes place over, the, you know, five days or something, which is essentially Blake, this rock star who's in a house full of drug addicts and he's just walking around in like basically a slippers and dressing gown and as I say it's very arty party and that's not the film that I want this to be I wanted it to be something something that focuses more on on Kurt Cobain's day I know it's very difficult because you know there's not a lot documented about him during this period during the sort of final days mm-hmm. Um, but you could do the start of the film beginning with the, uh, with Nirvana's 1995 tour you know, maybe kind of montage through some of it. Um, yeah, can, can you tell I've been watching a lot of Rocky films lately? You know, I'm considering that <laughs> as a legitimate method of filmmaking. But you could, you know, have a few of these sort of jams and mix them together and get through, you know, this tour up to the point um, where Kurt actually gets out of hospital after overdosing and goes back to Seattle. You know, you don't have to make it pandering to an audience with no, you know, mushy indie-style romance crap. You know, I wouldn't have... Andrew Garfield and Kerry Mulligan, for example, playing Kurt and Courtney, put it that way. Um, but you could still have something with the, the drama, trying to track him down with Kurt, you know, Courtney really unsure of where he is and, you know, people looking for him. You can have him in and out of the recovery centre, dealing with his kind of, you know, demons and so on. Um, you know, the best thing about Last Days was Michael Pitt playing Blake, who's in, um, 
Bald Rock Empire, Michael Pitt. Mm. He was the best thing about it. He, he really looked and was believable as Kirk, even though he wasn't playing Kirk. I mean. um, and he, yeah, he was just absolutely brilliant. So, sort of like Jerry's idea earlier, I would bring him back to this film and uh, have Michael Pitt playing Kirk Bane. Uh, and I'd actually probably, apart from this initial montage idea of mine, I would use the same track as songs that were stuff that inspired Nirvana and Kirk Main instead of using Nirvana songs. I think that would just be a little bit too cliché. So maybe something like, you know, Pixies, John Lennon, Velvet Underground, early R.E.M. stuff. I think it would be an absolutely fantastic same track, if nothing else. <laughs> um, but you could get someone like Anton... Um, Corbyn, who's directed quite a lot of music videos, including he did Heart Shaped Box for Nirvana, so he would have some kind of grasp on the character. But he also did, did the um, film Control, that Joy Division, and so. Uh, right, yeah. So you know, I think it would, he, he would be quite suited to this kind of film. I think he could give it quite an insightful perspective as well uh, if he was the director. Um, but yeah, I mean, it might be a bit obvious choice, but I couldn't really think of anyone who could who could do the same thing, but as well. So. That's my, my first film. I think there hasn't really oh. been a properly good film about Kirk Payne. So, you know, there's quite a trend for music biopics at the moment as well. So maybe someone could do, do one of those. Um, <laughs> the second film um, that I've decided to do would be focusing on a guy called Patrick Cootie, who was um, in the Incan tribes around sort of time that well, when Pachacuti came to power, it was sort of the mid-15th century. The only reason I know about him, by the way, is because of um, the BBC kids' sketch show, Horrible Histories. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Brilliant yeah. show. <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would probably make this into more of um, uh, an epic kind of war film, basically, because he's, if you don't know who he is, he's the, he basically had Maku... Pachupiku built for him, you know, this, this big Incan yeah. uh, uh, site, which is, it was just an estate that he had built for himself, apparently. But I would be more interested in, uh, more interested in this initial war that he fought, where apparently the legend about him uh, was started, uh, where it's said that actually even the stones rose up out of the ground to fight for him. And so his name, Pachacuti, literally translates as uh, he who shook the earth. I thought that's quite interesting. That's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's um, basically what happened with him. His father was um, Sapa Inca, a guy who, which basically means the king of their, their sort of tribe and stuff. Um, and Pachacuti wasn't even the first in line for the throne when his dad died. It, it, it was his older brother. But they actually fled when they were attacked. Pachacuti stayed to fight their enemies. Um, so this, you could have a film building up to this massive battle, which is where he won all this uh, admiration from his people and became their, their new king. Um, you know, the fallout of that as well, which would make a great film about him actually rising to power and taking over this, this kingdom. Uh, and you just think about the amazing locations you'd have to shoot on as well. Some of the scenery you could use in the mountain ranges in Peru and all the Incan sites and stuff. I think it would, if nothing else, like the, my first film with about Cobain with the same great. I think this would absolutely look fantastic. And uh, you could make it into a great drama as well. But the only problem is, I'm struggling to think who could play the characters and who could direct it. So I want to keep it with that sort of, you know, Latin American or Southern American style. So maybe someone like Del Toro, but he's more into sort of kind of fantasy, so he perhaps he could mm. produce it maybe. 
you know, um, Jorge Mikel Grau, who's the guy who did uh, a Mexican film called We Are What We Are. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's a sort of family of cannibals. Mm. But he, he, he's really good at capturing this tension. So, but I haven't seen anything else of his, so I don't know how well he would, he would do it. I suppose you could have someone like Robert Rodriguez, but it's not really his kind of film, thinking about it. <laughs> so I'm stuck for who we could use as a director, and I'm not sure about actors either. I mean, um, I know, for example, uh, that uh, Edward James Olmos, who was uh, most recently, mm. I think, was in um, Dexter. Yes, he could, yeah. He could, really play the father character quite well, I think. You know, he would, he's got this gravitas to him. And, mm. You know, why not have someone like Javier Bardem in, in it, there's two, maybe the rival tribe's leader, you know. But, you know, Pachacuti, I, I'm not really sure who you could get to play him. I think he was fairly young during this period, you know, sort of early 20 years old. I know it's difficult for them to find out exactly, but... Yeah. So, you know, I'm struggling to think, well, who could you get? Um, Aside from bringing Matthew Bainton out of the Horrible Histories program, which I don't think is a good idea, um, <laughs> I don't really know who you could get to. The only thing that what I was... about our chap that we cast as Diego earlier? I can't remember his name. <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's get him in. I, don't, I can't remember <laughs> him in, but yeah, he'll do. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I absolutely wouldn't want the film to end up as is something like Apocalypto, which bored the absolute tits off me. So, something not like that, but a kind of drama based around this big battle. So you can maybe have the battle of the second and third of the film. Yeah. You know. I thought that would be quite an interesting. It's also because I don't know that much about Patrick Kitty. Besides what I've, you know, read on Wikipedia and stuff. I think there's a lot of um big details on there that you can find out and build kind of film around. But I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting things that you could add into him about his legends and stuff. So you know, just the fact that he had uh that whole place built for him, for example. He must have been some character. Yeah, that would, that would be my second choice. Excellent. Um, no, no. My third and final film, trying to lighten the mood a little, I think, after the two serious <laughs> dramas I've just created. Um, I think it's actually the only comedy film that we've gone for, which is based on a true yeah. story. And I don't think it's going to take much explanation either, but I'd have Christopher Guest do a movie about the 80s alternative comedy movement in Britain. Oh, wow. I think, you know, you can maybe mix it up a bit with the wider pop culture trends at the time, but um, I think of all the brilliant British comedians you could have cameo in. You know, you could have Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson, Jack D, Eddie Yazar, Harry Enfield, Richard Saunders, Simon Pegg, Steve Coogan, the list is just exhausting. So, are you thinking like a 24-hour party people, but a British comedy rather than the Manchester music scene? Yeah, that kind of thing would be fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, and you could, I would even include a lot of the older um, older uh, comedians, they playing some of the old guard, you know, Vernon Manning, Russ Abbott, Mike Regan, Bowen, etc., but doing it in a really over-the-top manner in a way that Chris yeah. gets perfectly fantastic film character. Um, you know, the whole scene, I just find the whole thing interesting to read about. I was just a little bit too young to be around to, yeah. to read firsthand. But it's one of those things that in, you know, in time, you know, in looking back in hindsight and stuff, I think it's really interesting to read about. Um, and just because it inspired a lot of my favourite comedians too. So it, uh, the, the problem with the story, I guess, would be how you would focus it. Because if you say you just followed one particular character... You know, if you take, for example, Ben Elton from 1980 to 1990, you kind of miss out on a lot of the other stuff that was happening around that. 
I think Gen yeah. at his best when he's handling lots of different characters. Uh, yeah, loads of different strands and pulling it together. No, that would be brilliant. But I think what you could do is squash it into a short period of time with lots of different people. You know, um, the, uh, the, the mockumentary you do the, with the dogs, the dog show, I can't remember what it's called. So you could maybe perhaps take this as just like a week in the lives of the comedians in the 80s um, and perhaps build it up to something quite climactic, maybe the first episode of Saturday Live or, or something like that. Well, you, could have, you could have it based in the comedy store. Uh, oh, you, it, yeah, it could be built around just that one venue, couldn't it? Because they all performed there at one point or another. Yeah, yeah. you know, and then... Yeah. I basically just want to see Christopher Guest direct a comedy about the alternative comedy scene in the ages. So I'm not really fussed about any other minor details because I would just have complete faith in him to do a good job of it. I think it'd be awesome, whatever he did. Um, in fact, you know, it's one of those things that surprises me that hasn't been made already. I think mm. perhaps it's just because it's still fairly um, in people's, you know, people remember it quite well already and these comedians are still about performing comedy but yeah yeah i'm sure if i pitched it to chat for they'd snap it up in the oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's money in the bank isn't it yeah. um, <laughs> I, i'd definitely love to see this film i think it's my of my three choices this is the one that i would put all my money in to watch it and make it that, uh, I know, it's, and it's it's actually really unlike anything I've heard. But but at the same time, you're thinking, well, why hasn't anyone made a film about that? And I totally agree. Yeah, I know that, that um, Channel Four did a few of these little TV shows recently around the, the sort of comedy scene. I mean, or was it BBC who did it? But you know, as an actual film, I think it'd be brilliant. I think American audiences perhaps might not get it, but it would be one of these fantastic British films that I'm yeah. absolutely. It wouldn't be expensive, it's fine. Uh, get it lottery funded. <laughs> exactly, I'll take it to film four, I'm sure I can get yeah. something from It's fine. Yeah. But that was my final choice. I'm glad that one went in as well, because I was quite proud of that one. Well, I think we've had some very different and excellent choices. But James, what have the listeners come up with? Um, yeah, uh, we've had some great ones on Twitter. At Nathan Human. Uh, said John Darwin, the guy who faked his canoe death, which I think would be a great story. Yeah. He suggested Tom Wilkinson with Penelope Wilton as his wife. I think that'd be a great story. I'd love to, I'd love to properly get under the skin of that story because that's fascinating. Um, at Styles underscore J says, uh, the story of Walter Tull, the second black footballer to play in the Football League, who went on to become the first black officer in the British Army during World War One. He was killed in action. Uh, so yeah, brilliant, brilliant story there. My, bloody hell, my wife's joined in. Uh, at Kate Dive <laughs> says, is there a film of the life of Isambard Kingdom Brunel? She's saying that because I always bang on about Brunel. And she can only uh, find an animated short, Step Up Branner, she says, especially after seeing him at the Olympia. Yeah, I'd love to see a film of Brunel. Amazing. Uh, at Satisfied Fool says, um, Sir Randall Fine's life story. Brilliant. He also then said, you can pick the star and director. How about having Ray Fine's? Plays down. <laughs> How's that? And uh, Richard Attenborough to direct. There we go. That's job done. There. Does he still direct at the moment? Probably not. One of my favourite bad taste ones <laughs> on the forum, Love Child of Metzelder, says he'd like the Chris Benoit movie directed by Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> which would be wow. 
pretty, pretty disgraceful. But um, it did make me laugh a bit for my sins. Uh, so, yeah, that thank you to everyone who, who sent in some ideas there. I think there's some brilliant I've films. Just, and, yeah, we'll get some films out of this. I reckon this is, this is how we go in future. I've, I've just kind of realised we all picked biopics, really, rather than, like... Event, um, yeah, an event, like a, a true story of an actual happening. Mm. I don't, I don't I the 80s comedy movement. Yeah, 80s comedy one yeah. was a kind of long-term event, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's because if you're thinking about actors and th- you're thinking about getting under the skin of someone, mm, uh, yeah. I think. Uh, and maybe that's where it's come from. But no, you're right, Steve. That is quite an interesting observation there. I mean, there's, there's a few sporting stories, I think, that could, you know, make decent films as a, you know, a team, say, Denmark being the wild card entry in, in Euro 92 yeah. and winning it, or, uh, even Isovic being the, that's another individual, but I mean, being the wild yeah. card entry at Wimbledon that year and winning I'm it. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment about the Rome 1960 Olympics. Um, which is where everything changed. It was the first televised Olympics, uh, but there was still apartheid and black athletes were being kept separate from white athletes. Uh, it, the two, East Germany and West Germany, uh, continued to compete as one country for that one. There were spies everywhere. That, I, don't, I think Rome 1960 would be a fascinating mm. uh, film. But no, you're right. I think we were drawn to characters, weren't we? Mm. Yeah. Definitely. But when you've got characters like Mad Jack Churchill, you know, <laughs> who is my find? That is my find of this. If, in fact, if the listeners forget everything else, please remember Mad Jack Churchill. And just, that's just an incredible story. If, if you're from, if if you're somebody who makes TV programs or films, please make one about him because he's nuts. <laughs> he's quite frankly. There's, it's amazing. I want to see more. I, I am tempted to just go in now and. Uh, go back into my house, leave my car, uh, and go and start writing the story of Mad Jack Churchill, just in the hope someone, you know, if no one else is going to make it, I'll bloody well make I mean, it. How, how, many, how many people go from from war hero killing people in the Second World War where guns and tanks are common with bow and arrow to uh, surfer? Yeah. There's a the character in Apocalypse Now was uh, a surfer, wasn't he? Just thinking, yeah. actually, it just reminded me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed this episode, actually. I've learned a lot. Uh, yeah, and uh, and hopefully the listeners have as well. Mm. Uh, well, that's it for this week's Triple Bill. Uh, thanks to James, Owen, Jerry, and I'll thank myself again, because uh, it needs to be done. Thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music. Thanks for listening. Oh, and quickly, James, what's next week's Triple Bill topic? Next week's Triple Bill, I believe, uh, not I'm, I'm pretty sure it's um, uh, best Blu-ray DVD special features that you should be investigating because I, I used to be the type of person that would watch a film and I didn't really go through the, the extras and there's some fascinating ones on there. So we're going to be giving you our favourite ones that you should go and search out. Lovely. Yes, yeah, see you next week.